house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. You to us. Well, they told me I could find a room here. He thought we were at a bed and breakfast. He's a stranger. Hello. Did you know he had a wife? Who are these people? They've come here to see me. <laughs> come quick. You're insane. God help you. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that definitely knows what jojoba is as long as you have absolutely no follow-up questions about it. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. 100 different times it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died. We are here, as always, to perform the autopsy. I am your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with the heart-shaped jewel at the center of my cavernous country home. Chris File, how are you? Ripped from the chest of Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> the Oscar hopes died 100 yeah. times and they were resurrected and they came back and said, baby? Baby. Oh my god. It's such a perfect ending. Hugh it... Patty Smith. <laughs> Is that actress anybody I should have recognized, by the way? The, the new No, mother? but you know who I did recognize and freaked out over? Because I wasn't a watcher before quarantine, but yeah. now I've watched Shit's Creek. I know Creek. you're going to say. Yeah. Stevie from Shit's Creek. I am so sorry. I don't have the actress's name. Emily Hampshire. Emily Hampshire. Fantastic. I, I she's don't the... love Shit's Creek as much as everyone else. I'm sorry, but I, I do love her. Um, that she is the girl. She's one of the sink breakers. Who she like breaks the fucking sink. Like she's the one who like bounces on that and like so recklessly. I had gone and looked at the Wikipedia page for Mother before I had started watching it last night, and I reminded myself. I knew that Giovanna Depo was in it, but I sort of had forgotten. And then I saw her name in the cast list, and I was like, I did not because I also saw Mother before. I had uh, started watching Schitt's Creek, and it was a pleasant surprise. So I knew to look out for her, but yeah, that was that was really something. Also, I had never looked breaker. at the cast list for the movie and seen that all the character names are just um, like the, the functions they are. Right? Yes, mm-hmm. Jennifer Lawrence's mother, Bardem is him. Uh, Ed Harris's man, Michelle Pfeiffer's woman, but then it gets into like Giovanna Depo is cupbearer, uh, Emily Hampshire is fool, uh, there's idler, whisperer, <laughs> adulterer, zealot, defiler, pisser. What are lingerer. the brothers Gleason? Like it's it literally seems like um like a book of Genesis, like X begat Y begat whatever, except like it's all just like <laughs> nouns. It's just like novitiate, initiate, pilferer. Good Samaritan whoremonger. Like, I can't believe that all of these extras essentially got character names. Wait, Kristen Wiig is named, um, now I gotta find her. Like Harold. Pu- She's the Harold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking we've about done a Mother. lot of, <laughs> we've done a lot of Kristen Wiig movies, surprisingly. We have. Um, yeah. Or is it this just our second Kristen Wiig movie? After, um, uh, Mitty? I thought uh, there was another one. I, I could be wrong. There probably is. 
Uh, but if you, anyway. if, if you figured out our many, many uh, subtle to unsubtle hints that we have dropped in the past several weeks about what the our 100th episode would be. The anagrams I've put into tweets <laughs> that like the first letter of every sentence spells the word sink. Chris um, has been uh, the living embodiment of whoever uh, Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind thought was sending him messages through the newspaper. Like Chris was that person. This last I tried time. to turn you into Russell Crowe in A Beautiful Mind. Um, <laughs> we hope some of you, you have been paying attention. Nothing. Yeah, I know I threw in a few. I think I threw in a few brace yourselves. And um, I almost tweeted this week, I wanted to tweet, um, I have a sinking feeling someone's going to guess what our 100th episode is going to be, and then I never did it. Um, you still have time. We're recording this. Uh, That's true. That's true. How, how, how are you all uh, to know? By the time you're listening to this, mm-hmm. it'll already have happened. So, yeah, we we knew, we've known for a while that this was going to be the movie. Every time we've thought about, like, should we do Mother? And then the next sentence out of either one of our mouths is just save it for the 100th. Because... Mm-hmm. A, what I what I realized when I was looking through the list of our hundred movies that we've done on this podcast is this is the first one that we've seen together. No, we didn't see this together. Yes, we did. Did we not? We were both at the first TIFF press screening, but not together. We were in separate rooms? I think so, because this was my first TIFF. And like this is when I had to do the like the voucher thing to get into right. the screenings, and I was like up at like seven in the morning in so line, saw it. making sure that I got to see this movie. All right, I know I, I'm trying to like literally like put myself in the seat. I know Richard Lawson, past guest Richard Lawson, was to my right, and I remember he had to leave like right away because he had another screening i forget what the other movie that was screening right after but it was like god bless that movie whatever it was it was it was another big one i remember because i remember everybody sort of like grumbling about the scheduling because it really Uh left people with like no time to get to this other screening and i just uh, bailed on it and you Um, probably cannot at all digest whatever that movie would have been because you were just aggressed for two well and i remember sitting next to richard i remember knowing that he wasn't liking it i was like like definitely could pick up on like whatever like vibing and like nonverbal whatever i was like all right richard is hating this movie and i guess it must not have been you to my left it might have been nick davis but um maybe i'm confusing that with seeing widows which you were definitely Next to yes, me. I gave us a 4DX exper- experience watching right. Widows. Um, but we say that we uh, um, we at least saw this movie simultaneously. Then within the same building, under the same right, roof. right, because it's one of those ones they split into two things. The thing that I will say that is important about when we saw this movie, yeah. we basically saw. I mean, we weren't the first people to see it. It played Venice before it played Toronto, correct? But we were like the first people to digest. We among the first people to digest this movie before like any discourse happened yes. about it, really. And I which remember, I think, like, primes the audience to understand we both love this movie. Love this movie. Love this movie. I know there's going to be people waiting for us to like trash it. No, no, it's great. Like, it, we'll obviously get into like the the discourse around this movie and yes. Aronofsky's role in it. Yes. But, like, I think if you... This is a movie made to, like, go in not really knowing what it is. And, like, that's part of the reason why it was so poorly received. Because I think it was absolutely presented to audiences, like, as this mystery box. But, like, a mystery box in a different direction that the movie doesn't make good on. 
Right. Well, so here's the thing. So the teaser, uh, like a year ahead, of, a year ahead, I'm into this movie because it's Aronofsky, it's Jennifer Lawrence, the cast is amazing, Michelle Pfeiffer's in it, whatever. I'm like, I'm already down for this movie. And then the teaser comes out, which is just this 30 second thing, which isn't like even scenes. It's like Jennifer Lawrence walking to the front porch of this house, and then it's audio snippets from the movie without you seeing what scenes they're from. And just from that, A, I was like, fuck yes. But B, I was like, I want to know nothing else about this. This is sort of what I did with Hereditary too. And so I like Mm -hmm. set up all of my muted terms on Twitter and (laughs) refused to watch any of the subsequent trailer or TV spots. And um, this wasn't the one where I ran out of a theater during the previews. No, that was Hereditary, where I actually went and saw, I think it was when I saw Thoroughbreds, uh, mm-hmm. when I was in, when I was at the Grove in LA. Um, and it was one of those like noon screenings or whatever. So it's just like me and like two other people in there. And the trailers came on, and the first one I knew uh, was the Hereditary trailer because I had seen just the beginning of it and like turned mm-hmm. it off before. And so I literally got out of my seat and like, hid my eyes from the screen and walked out and like waited uh, three minutes and then walked back in. So <laughs> I wouldn't watch your the fellow patrons think it's because you're a chicken shit. Right. Probably. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, exactly. I did the same with hereditary because for whatever reason, I was lucky enough to not like see it on Twitter, but I did see people saying that the trailer like fully gave away things that the should be held for the movie. So like I avoided yes. that trailer. Yeah. But, but what I, I remember missed, just like hiding my eyes in the theater and like not really hearing important dialogue. What I missed in the media blackout that I imposed on myself for Mother, though, was an ad campaign, specifically the TV spots, that really sold this as a horror movie. And mm-hmm. that is, and when you sell something that hardcore as a horror movie to mainstream audiences, and it, the results, I do think this is a horror movie, but it's definitely not a typical horror movie. And it certainly doesn't I'm one of go those where you think it's going to go. Mother is a comedy. I mean, it also is that. Like, yes. I, I am, I'm one of those cuckoo birds. You um, are, that, that fits perfectly with your, your, uh, with your my personality world and your sensibility. <laughs> Absolutely. But I, but so then that explained to me the backlash of the movie made a lot more sense to me once I went back and watched a lot of the TV spots. I was like, oh, okay. So like they were definitely selling something that wasn't there. But so it also mm-hmm. meant that the first sort of like indication beyond the fact that they sent a heart uh, a cake in the shape of a like bloody heart to my place of business, um, <laughs> which, okay, sorry. I'm like filibustering here, but like, bear with me. Um, no, this, I, I will have my moments as well. This was the summer I had Buckle mono. In, guys. <laughs> and so the summer I had mono, I was uh, sick with a fever that I couldn't explain for like three weeks. And I thought, fully thought I was dying. And I was like, I'm the worst possible person to have an unexplained fever because like Chris well knows because I texted him every day and mm-hmm. told him I was dying. And I was like just so, it was in such a bad way. I did not feel like myself for three weeks. I really thought something was like incredibly seriously wrong. And so, um, but I also didn't know what it was. So I kept going into work, um, which 
if I had known I had mono, I would have just stayed home for a week and whatever and got better. Um, anyway, so I'm going into work. I feel like an absolute zombie. I feel like, you know, just <laughs> absolutely not myself. And so in the midst of all this, I get this email from Paramount, uh, Paramount Publicity, being like, what's your what's your work address? We want to send you something. And I never get swag, ever. Anytime anybody is, like, posting on Twitter about this box of swag they got from a movie, never. Never happens to me. So I was so excited for this. Anyone and, at Paramount listening, if there's leftover mother swag, we are your audience. Send right. it to us. But also, one of the symptoms of me being sick was I had no appetite. So I was also eating nothing. So, like, that also contributed to what it was. I had absolutely no appetite. I had a doctor's appointment that afternoon that I was going right from the office. I still didn't know what was wrong with me, so I was all head up about that. And then they, and I knew this was coming like an hour before because I had started seeing other people sort of posting on Twitter. But Paramount sent these, uh, to media, they sent these cakes that were this like really kind of yummy chocolate layer cake covered in uh, fondant that was then sort of like slathered in this like, slightly viscous red goo and it was not like a like little like clip art heart it was like a gnarled muscle heart (laughs) so it was just this big red glump of heart cake that they delivered to the office we'll have to put a photo of it um in we absolutely will uh in the in the notes when we we publish the episode but it was i was and i couldn't eat it because i had no appetite and i was about to go to the doctor's office but so i sort of like we photographed it and then everybody else in my office ate it and i think i took some home for like when i was feeling better and it was delicious but so in the midst of all of that like it was i was already thinking like i was already going crazy (laughs) essentially (laughs) and like this really really didn't contribute so like that happened and that was really the only promotional stuff from mother that i was had paid attention to until we walk into the screening at tiff and they like scan your uh your badge or whatever and they let you in but then they were handing out that little sound is my asmr (laughs) <laughs> the yes. little scanning sound. <gasps> yes, and the little beep. Okay, so yeah. you got all better, and then by the time Toronto comes, you launch yourself into basically cinematic mono. Um, yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> this um, movie is how mono feels. Yeah, I, I got, I literally, that, that day that the cake arrived was when they finally told me, oh, you... They're like, you had mono. And I'm like, because by then, like, I just started. The symptoms had just started to get better. Mm-hmm. So, like, oh, this thing that you've had for three weeks has been mono. Anyway, so Toronto was not too long after this. Because this movie opened, like, at the tail end of Toronto. This screened at Toronto yeah. just before it opened wide. It opened wide, by the way. Like, opened across the nation. It was a terrible decision. <laughs> we'll get into that. But so Horrible. we walk in... And I promise this filibuster will end, Chris, and I will absolutely let you speak at length. Um, But we walk in and we get handed this, like, square little piece of thick cardstock. Like, the corners are sharp. Like, this was, like, very, like, a serious piece of uh, square little piece of paper. They, sliced it outside the theater. It was, like, truly... It was, like, hot off the presses. And so on it It is a a poem... And so I, I had my roommate, because I'm, I'm not at home at this point during uh, the pandemic. So I had my roommate find this poem, because I kept it, and uh, photograph it to me, uh, photograph it and send it to me. So the poem on it is called Mother's Prayer, and I'm just going to read it really quick. Uh, Our mother who art underfoot, 
hallowed be thy names. Thy seasons come, thy will be done, within us as around us. Thank you for our daily bread, our water, our air, and our lives and so much beauty. Lead us not into selfish craving and the destructions that are the hungers of the glutted, but deliver us from wanton consumption of thy vast but finite bounty, for thine is the only sphere of life we know, and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So that is obviously a poem that is a takeoff on uh, the Lord's Prayer. and But it really crystallizes, like, seconds before this movie is starting, by the way, minutes before this movie is starting, by the way, I'm reading this poem, and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, this whole tantalizing concept of mother, what's it about, whatever. And then I read this thing, and I'm like, oh, it's about the environment. Because that poem, like, very, very, very clearly tells you what this ambiguous term mother. Now all of a sudden, it's just like, oh, it's Mother Earth. And so by reading that, and I'm watching the movie, now the quote-unquote like twist of the movie, the allegory of the movie, which is like a double allegory, but we'll get into that, mm-hmm. becomes incredibly clear to me as I'm watching the movie. And it really um, colors my reception of the movie. And I do feel like the very different ways that people received this movie really depends on where your mind was at in terms of what is this story about Mm-hmm. As you're watching it. Tell me if I'm wrong. And how much you had received people's processing of the movie. Yes. And, like, when you saw it in the release cycle. Because, like, it bombed. But, like, it did hang around in theaters for a few weeks. And people were still seeing it. Yes. But, like, there was also the stages of how much Aronofsky keeps coming out of the woodwork to explain the movie. Yes. And explain his thought process behind it. And, like, yes. not doing the movie any service at all and i don't even think that poem does the movie any service to like especially if you see it right before the movie which like i was bolting into the theater because it's like they let you in at the very last minute so i yeah. didn't read the poem beforehand but well we'll Aronofsky get into I, yeah. I want to get into after we do the plot descriptions i want to get into what we think the movie is about what aronofsky thinks the movie is about and what other people thought it's about because like it's all very different things and it all absolutely contributes to how people saw the movie Mm -hmm. but yeah so so what was your so now i've gone into like eight million stanzas on what my (laughs) anticipation for this movie was talk to me about it's almost like you're the javier bardem i know i know i don't want to be the jennifer lawrence i have five words to say no no Um, no no tell me (laughs) tell me about your journey to anticipating this movie I mean, he's a dick, but I love Aronofsky. I Noah don't even think he's terrible. that much of a dick, honestly. Like, but we'll talk I about that. Do we'll I think he's a fairly um, typical auteur. Yeah, yeah. And most of them are are um, uh, you know, very typical, we'll very particular types. Very particular, using like uh, weird, uh, like not always okay practices to manipulate his performers, whatever. Um. I love his movies, and yeah. um, I especially love The Fountain, Yes, which is like the one that felt like we didn't really know what it was going into it. His movies are always marketed usually really well, and this was coming off of Noah, right. which is a piece of shit. Um, it's also his most impersonal movie to me. Right? right obviously it's a bible story it's not anything he wrote himself but it the also feels thing... like he gives the least of his personal touch to it mm-hmm. um uh, the thing about noah is like 
that movie and this movie are in a really interesting dialogue. It almost feels like the things he was trying to do with Noah or the conversations he was trying to have with Noah, he actually does get to have them in this movie. Yeah. Um. So, like, I was obviously very excited about it. Like, when Black Swan came out, I was one of the Black Swan obsessives. I saw it with my best friend two days in a row at, like, 11 o'clock at Amazing. night both times. Um. So, like, I was just very anticipatory of whatever this movie would be. So, it's like, you say you didn't really take in any of the marketing for this movie. I, on the other hand, took all of it in um, and, like, ate it very vociferously. But the yeah. thing was, like, you still weren't given that much information about what this thing would be. Right. Like, I remember it was either Earth Day or Mother's Day. Same when... thing if you watch this movie. <laughs> basically um when the poster was released where it's like jennifer lawrence in a garden and she's clearly ripped out her own heart and she's like offering it up to whatever yeah. and it was like the type of thing that like yeah everybody looks clearly at a metaphor that wouldn't ever be literalized in a movie <laughs> no like it, it was it was so extreme that you were like okay this is obviously like some type of like you know mystery box of what the movie is but really it's just like it is the movie that yeah. is exactly it is so literal for what it is that's um, the biggest gag of this movie is that like for all that there is a lot to talk about in terms of symbolism and allegory or whatever the movie just gives it to you like it does not mm-hmm. do a whole ton to obfuscate what it's talking about at all mm-hmm. it's just there it's right there Everything is so obvious to the point where the few things where I'm watching it and that I don't fully get what they're supposed to be allegorically, it bugs me all the more because everything else is incredibly obvious. Adam and Eve and, and you know, the Christ child and all this. And I'm just like, but what's the yellow liquid that she's drinking? Like, I don't understand what that <laughs> metaphor is. And it's bothering me because, like, clearly everything else is very specifically something. I think it's more of just like a color theme. Yeah. Throughout the movie, like whatever yellow symbolizes is some type of restorative thing, like the clay that she uses on the walls are yellow. Yeah, sort of um, like a brownish yellow, but yeah. There I mean, like not to get gross about it, but like there's a whole thread of like pissing I in was, this movie. I was gonna say the IMDB IMDB trivia lists uh that like that peeing is a theme in this movie the little boy pees himself and there's the the liquid that she drinks is piss colored and i'm just like all right yeah like i i don't necessarily think it's supposed to be her ingesting drinking the piss of christ no probably but um no 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 no. it's but like it's got to be something right but like for as much as like darren aronofsky like hammered in what the movie is about like and people vociferously rolled their eyes at that like there's still so much to like interpret and i do actually think there's plenty of room to come up with your own interpretation for the movie that like he fully cut his own movie off at the knees by like talking to anyone who would listen about what he intended to make this movie for um i'll push back against that a little bit but i'll do it after we get uh, to the plot because i want to sort of uh set that table first but like the thing where you're talking about the trailers the trailers didn't really give you anything it's like there was like jennifer lawrence wandering the house with like dialogue from the movie and yelling and it's very um she yells murderer at the very end of the teaser which like that was all i needed that's when i knew i was like well i don't need anything more i'm i'm already as pumped for this movie as i can possibly get and the longer trailer is like a bunch of flash cuts and you see the 
I think the only thing you see from the third act of the movie is her screaming. And right. it's like a really tight shot on her face, so you really but can't tell you what's do happening. hear you do hear in that trailer, because I watched it again this morning, the telltale crack. You don't see what it is, and you have had no reference point for it. Uh, when you're watching the trailer, unless you've seen the movie, but once you've seen the movie, like you hear that telltale crack um, that comes in the late part of the movie with the baby. Um, mm-hmm. And I was like watching it again. I was just like, oh, shit. Like he really just does put it right out there, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like there was a whole lead up campaign to like a trailer being released like they put these that was like, one of the very 30 early second trailers in theaters that were like all black yep. with like some of that dialogue and yep. then you saw that's her right. eyes open and just the word mother that's right so it's like there was like this building promotional campaign for it that just gave the movie this aura of like a horror mystery box that could never really be fulfilled but it also allows whoever's watching that and their imagination to like fill in the gaps of what they expect this movie to be and i think that yes. this movie was ex- was what exactly nobody expected well that's it to the thing be. and we'll get into the f cinema score thing uh later on but it's it always sort of annoys me about the greater american movie going public and not to like get all on my snobby high horse or whatever but like that american movie audiences have been so trained to not only expect um to find like typical haunted house answers to horror movies that when they don't get it they get like seriously pissed we're like uh we're like the the bug trailers allude to um maybe that aliens are involved and obviously when you watch Mm -hmm. bug the idea that it's not really aliens is part of the thing because they're paranoid it's about paranoia um no less effective of a thriller but because audiences need to have the kind of explanation that they're used to from other movies they won't accept anything else and i think that was the thing with mother where like once you got the sense that maybe the house is alive or something is in the basement or whatever. Then mm-hmm. all of a sudden the audiences now in their heads are demanding some like, you know, modern cookie cutter, ghostly apparition showing up in the final third of the movie to explain some of the why the house campaign, is so weird. Like rift on like the exorcist and Rosemary's baby. So like you're expecting like, demons or something well the movie definitely riffs on rosemary's baby like very explicitly and in like good ways but i think the things the ways in which it's like rosemary's baby are like the way that she can't trust her husband or that the husband keeps like whispering around corners with other characters, not even whispering, but just like talking in that she can't hear. And she's, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not sure what they're saying. And it's all just like, and it's all paranoia and it's all very like, you know, and then obviously the fact that like, you know, her baby gets taken away from her at the end. Like that's an obvious, like Mm -hmm. baby thing, but yeah, you're right. That it's not like, it's not like the devil's behind it in this movie. And I think a lot of people needed something to be behind it all. Right. Some big revelation at the end. Mm -hmm. And this movie just doesn't give you that. I'm not surprised at all that this was an F cinema score, but like many F cinema score movies, it's incredibly interesting. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. All right. Do we want to uh, try to wrap our heads around 
the task of doing a 60 second plot description for this movie. I think that sounds like uh, something we're uh, prone to do. So I had an idea for our hundredth episode um, that we would, instead of one of us doing the 60 second plot description that the, we would both try a 60 second plot description at the same time. <laughs> I think it is appropriate to the chaos of this movie to convey to listeners who have maybe not seen this movie. Yes. What the tone of this movie is. It's, I felt like if we're going to do Mother, we might as well um, <laughs> make our listeners feel as crazy as we felt watching the movie. No, that's not exactly what we want. But um, yeah, I think you're right. I think chaos is the watchword for this movie. Um, so let's just get the uh, basics out of the way. This movie is Mother, 2017, directed by Darren Aronofsky, written by Darren Aronofsky, starring Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Bardem, Ed Harris, Michelle Pfeiffer, Donald Gleason, Brian Gleason, uh, Kristen Wiig. We mentioned Giovanna Depo. We mentioned Emily Hampshire, uh, the Sink Bounder. Uh, premiered September 5th, 2017, at the Venice International Film Festival, and then September 17th, 2017, uh, Opened wide, which again, probably not a great decision to open this wide. Maybe platforming would have been better. Who knows? Hindsight is twenty twenty. Christopher, Joseph, we're going to do this at the same time. Listeners can uh, try and make sense of it if you want to, or just embrace the chaos, which is, I think, a, a thing about Mother that uh, embracing the chaos is probably the the road to having your best experience with this movie. Fantastic. All right. Ready? Yes. And go. Jennifer and on Lawrence the plays day, the unnamed wife to an unnamed Javier Bardem who is living in a it. massive Victorian so, uh, country Jennifer home in the middle Lawrence of literal nowhere Mother and which was once burned down and now she's restoring at one slab of thick brown paint at a time. And also the house seems to be alive. He's a poet who retreats into his work often and pays her increasingly less attention as the film progresses. Into their life wanders and Harris is a local doctor who soon find out is like a fan of the poet and after a night of drinking and puking in weird open ribcage wounds, Harris invites his wife over have a funeral and she's Michelle Pfeiffer and the two of them overstep their bounds at all times and will never leave. Their feuding sons arrive, get into a fight, and then one kills the other one leaving to a memorial service in the house where even more people show up. None of them are considered. They sit on the unbraced sink until it breaks and floods the kitchen and Jennifer Lawrence takes them all out. Then Jay Locke gets pregnant and everything seems fine for one literal minute until he finishes his book of poetry and it becomes an instant bestseller. Fans come swarming into the home and overtake it and they become fanatic and violent and steal things. Kristen Wiig is there and, house, and then she executing has a baby people in their random. room, they're blocked off. J-Law has the baby he and tries to keep to it all away from them the people, but Javier Bardem is vain, him. wants to share his baby with the adoring uh, masses, and they take like, it, and they aren't the gentle with it, and they break its neck, and they eat its body, and Bardem is like, honey, let's forgive them, and J-Law is like, fuck that, and goes into the basement and sets the oil furnace on fire, and the whole house burns down, and she's dying, and he's fine, and she offers him her heart, which he takes from her chest and crushes it. And retrieves from it his precious little diamond that lets him restore the house with a brand new young wife and start again. Baby? <sighs> we did it. We did it way closer than I thought we were going to. <laughs> oh, my God. So much going on. So much going on. Okay, so 
We apologize if that was annoying to anybody, but we uh, it was a fun idea. Okay, indulge us. Indulge um, us. Thank you. We'll try to separate the audio. Hopefully, there's funny shit in there. Yeah. I. It wasn't until I watched this at home that I realized how long the sequence is where it's like truly just madness. It's like forty minutes long, and it's so it it. It's it gets it's on your so nerves. It's so miserable that it flies by. Meanwhile, the first like hour and fifteen minutes of the movie, yes. also flies by that you don't realize how long and kind of meticulously observed all of the quiet stuff is when it's just like the loudest thing in the movie is fucking Michelle Pfeiffer not shutting up. Well, that's and okay. So not that's judging the thing, Jennifer Lawrence. That's the thing that I love about this movie is there's creaky walls and there's weird heartbeats and there's a scary basement and uh, there's a like scary jump cut to Donald Gleason being like behind Jennifer Lawrence and all threatening and whatever. Mm-hmm. And yet all of the most suspenseful nerve shredding moments are Michelle Pfeiffer like being an overstepper or that fucking sink being unbraced like that's so it's so emblematic that's the that was the that was the sort of like meme that emerged from the movie that was like the joke that emerged from the movie afterwards and for a good reason because like everybody remembers that stuff because it's so um sort of like quotidian and like elemental where it's just sort of just mm-hmm. like these people won't listen when I ask them nicely to get off that sink because it's not braced and it's going to break. Like, so much of this movie is just people not refu- not even, not only not listening to Jennifer Lawrence, but, like, either flat out ignoring her or, like, kind of, like, laughing at her as if she, mm-hmm. like, would make this request of them. And it's, it's so It's a movie effective. about rude people. <laughs> it is. Well, it's, it's a movie about a, somebody who's, like, slightly antisocial who like would prefer to just be like with one person that they like rather than like a group of people and like what would happen if i was gonna say in like when we talk about different interpretations of the movie one of my favorite pieces about this movie um camdus frederick wrote it for vice it's interpreting the movie as like the hell it is to be an introvert in the in a world of extroverts yeah yes yes i love it so in terms of interpreting the movie, I just want to sort of like, I'll throw my take on it out there and then you can do the same. Um, again, reading the poem set me on a path. And then, because, so there's the biblical allegory in this stuff, which is like, I think like that's surface A, where like it becomes incredibly obvious. You really can't miss it. Uh, Bardem is God. Jennifer Lawrence is, like, Earth Mother, and then, like, Ed Harris is Adam, Michelle Pfeiffer is Eve. There's a point when he's puking uh, that first night where you can see this, like, open wound on him where, like, literally, like, at his ribs. So, you know, you and then see Michelle his ribs Pfeiffer removed, and then up. Michelle Pfeiffer shows up, which is, like, Adam and Eve. Obviously, their children are Cain and Abel. Donal kills the other Gleason and then gets this, like— Big gash on his forehead, Mark of Cain, obviously, all this stuff. Yeah, but Mark, the Mark of Cain to me is that wound that, like, is in the floor and is in the house. Well, also that. Growing. Yes, yes. Um, I, yes, there are, there's more sort of uh, metaphorical allegory stuff. And then there's stuff that's just, like, very much one-to-one. And mm-hmm. um, then you get to the later part where she has 
the baby, and the baby is, again, a pretty obvious Christ metaphor, where if you don't understand it at first, by the time they, like, carry the baby off and kill it, and then they cut to everybody literally eating parts of the baby as if, like, it's Eucharist, which, I'm sorry, makes me laugh out loud every time I see it, because the cut is, it's such a comedic cut, and it's so obvious in its symbolism which i don't think is a detriment to the movie um i mean it's also so grotesque that like yes! you have to respond yes! in some way exactly like, it's one of those things that it's so physical you have to like put something out of your body but so that second half of the movie where the house gets overrun for the second time and all of a sudden it becomes like the entire horrible parade of human history marches through that house and it's um, so I wrote this down as my, like, my general sort of, like, thesis to the movie, and it's essentially the story of, like, I can imagine, and I don't know this for sure, even though Aronofsky talked about his, you know, reasons for making the movie a lot, um, but just, like, imagining the the sort of uh, elemental story of the Earth, right, in its mm-hmm. most literal terms, but like what if like imagining what if you were the earth who you know created by god or whatever and then god grows disinterested with you brings in humans and then lets them literally do whatever they want run roughshod over you destroy this beautiful home that you've created trample you beat you like you know uh mm-hmm. you know destroy your child destroy everything and like what would that feel like and aronofsky is very very explicit when uh he's did his interviews about like this is an environmental allegory and i happen to that is my interpretation of it as well so like Mm -hmm. i was definitely on board with it where he's just like he's so unambiguous about it we're like this is an environmental allegory this is about how uh humanity has destroyed the earth and ravaged uh the planet and that is sort of in the person of Jennifer Lawrence and yes. the it's, other it, it made... is climate change personified you right know. climate change but also just like the absolute um indifference of humanity to what they were doing and they're almost like defiant cruelty in the face of what they're doing to this planet and all this sort of stuff. And to me, that made perfect sense. And I thought it was not subtle, but like, if you are going to create this like giant primal howl about the planet being destroyed, this is to me a pretty effective way of doing that. And I think the movie like achieves its objectives the other major interpretation of the movie though and i'll sort of pass this off to you to talk about which was i was reading a couple of the reviews uh this morning to sort of like get me into it and obviously i clicked on allison wilmore's review for buzzfeed because one of our finest film critics um truly she was as certain as i was that this was like it's the environmental allegory whatever um Allison was just as, like, stone-cold certain that, like, this is an allegory about an artist who uh, is writing about what it is like 
to create and have his creation sort of uh, adored over and obsessed over and then kind of taken away from him and what the creator does in terms of like isolating himself from his, you know, loved ones, Mm -hmm. his spouse, whatever, like that all of this, that essentially the metaphor of mother isn't necessarily about the mother. It's about Bardem as artist slash God. And I think that's there certainly, Mm -hmm. but my interpretation of it is a, that's secondary slash supplemental and B I think almost largely accidental which I think is maybe even more fascinating but this is this is my problem and like I I love that interpretation and I think there's a lot of there's a lot there that is so smart and I think especially if this is a movie about the creative process it gives you a real direct answer to the like regeneration or the like starting anew um you know, like circular nature of this movie, how it like ends where it begins, you know, and it's right projects a repeated cycle like that to me, ha- you know, the artist interpretation of this movie has a better answer for that element than like the environmental thing, because uh don't know how to say this to you. But like once the earth burns down, we're not going to get another earth, guys, um, <laughs> we'll all, uh, unless unless it's Elysium, you know, um, Right. Uh, I like that. But here's my problem. This is what I was getting on with it. Darren Aronofsky coming out and being, like, so hard talking to anyone who will listen about, like, this is what my movie is, being very rigid about it, doesn't allow for, like, any other type of interpretation when it's, like, he made a movie that I think by its virtue and like what is so good about the movie is that you can take all of these different type interpretations from it. Like obviously it's rooted in that, but like it's rooted in the environmentalism, but like you can branch off and have several different things. Like you even brought up the baby as kind of like a one for one Christ symbol and I don't even necessarily think that it has to be the baby Jesus. It could be the polar ice caps. It could be, you know, natural resources. It could be oil. Um, Sure. And I guess part of that is when you're making an allegory about something like the Bible, which is in itself a creation myth that is largely allegorical. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden now you're you're at layers on layers, right? You're at one layer mm-hmm. on top of another already. So yes, absolutely, there is like room within those folds to find other um, explanations. I would just my... say that, like, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say my initial interpretation of the movie because, like, I didn't read any of the environmental um, stuff, and I didn't read that poem before watching the movie, but. My read was, like, really influenced by those Aronofsky comments before the movie was released of trying to convey a feeling of something, um, which obviously, like, turned out, like, conveying a feeling of how the Earth must feel for all of our bullshit. But, like, I thought, for whatever reason, I was on a similar, like, trajectory, but not an artist as like Alison Wilmore's interpretation, I interpreted it as like, this is what it's like to send your literal baby or your literal child into the world. And like having 
conveying the feeling of anxieties about having children and then once you have them and not mm. being able to uh, preserve them or protect them from the world around you. Which yeah, I guess I is also that. a really literal interpretation. But like to me, this was like the hell of uh, like contemplating and then being in the real world of what it's like to have a child today in this world. That was yeah. my first interpretation. I'm not that's not where I am now. If anything, like I feel like watching this movie now, and I feel like I might lose some people here, so sorry. <laughs> um I kind of my interpretation of watching it now, and granted I've seen it a bunch of times, is a little bit yes anding what uh Darren Aronofsky is doing and I think that this is a movie that says that religion is the most destructive um, force in the world. <laughs> that, like, because he, if he is God, and even if he isn't God, what is created from his followers, his readers, whatever you want to call them, that invade this house, they worship him. They obsess over what he produces. They obsess over this baby. And in doing so, they destroy everything. And yes. the earth can only respond back. Um, so that is kind of where I'm at with this movie now. I definitely incorporate that read of it into my read. I just feel like that is a piece of it. That to me, mm -hmm. it's, you know, that thing in uh, Angels in America where the angel is talking about how God grew bored with his angels and um, in seeking something more interesting created man who is... Um, flawed and dumb and and whatever and but like but so you know interested god that he turned himself away from heaven and the angels and um put all of his attention on man and so that to me was is i think the fundamental thing of what mother is about for me which is mm -hmm. what if i'm the earth and i'm creating I'm, you know, Mother Earth, right? The sort of like the animus of if you want to like, you know, Earth as a as a human concept, right? I've created this beautiful home. I'm restoring this beautiful home. Everything is wonderful. There is literally the pastoral environment around this home. I think one of my favorite touches of the movie is there is no path to the house. Like mm -hmm. there is no even walkway up to the front door. They check. They have, there are a couple points where you see it from overhead and. They're like, there it's is like, no way uh, to get to the house. It's so it's much. It's like if the Maitlands leave the Beetlejuice house. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but at least when the Maitlands look outside, they see a driveway, right? Where it's just like, there is no getting to this house. It if is they so... look out from a window, but like if they step right. out no, onto right, the porch. Right. It's just a sea of. Right. And she never, she never leaves the house. And I think for very similar reasons, right? But so mm -hmm. she's, you know, puts all of her all of what she is into creating this beautiful home out of love and care. And all he does, Javier Bardem, God, whatever, which at the end of the movie, he does eventually say like, when she's like, who are you? And he says, I am, which is like, that's, that's literally God. Anyway. Um, uh, all he does is bring in human, bring in humanity and then does nothing to curb what they are doing does nothing to mm -hmm. like and and doesn't care just absolutely could not care less about what they are doing to her beautiful home to her wonderful idyllic pastoral 
she says paradise at one point. I want to make this a paradise. Like that was sort of my big mm-hmm. early clue that like, oh, okay, this is Garden of Eden, whatever. Um, and so what must that feel like to not only have humanity all ugly and gross and selfish and consuming and pissing and farting and, and you know, sitting on your sink and stealing shit, like stealing your resources and all of this stuff, not only to have all of that, but to have the God figure be completely indifferent, like mm-hmm. absolutely couldn't care less. And I was well, just like, it paints oh, okay. a picture of like the idea of God where God is obsessed with God's followers as much as the followers are obsessed with God, right? Yes. Or maybe right. it's God needs their attention so. as much as they need his sort of like, you know, benevolent uh, gaze or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, right. Which then feeds into uh, the God as artist thing because, like, an Aronofsky made his God character a poet. Um, for a reason, although I my see my interpretation of it is is that I don't think Aronofsky realized exactly all he was funneling into this movie, but where uh, right. God in this movie is a vain, needy, um, uh, praise obsessed, like all he wants from anything in this movie is the adoration of humanity, which is very easy to read into as uh audience slash fans, right? Mm-hmm. And to and so I think the other thing was, and this is I think a big reason why this Are you getting so to the point where one of the jokes became Mother is a Rachel Vice biopic? Well yes, which is but I think but I think the entry point to that is while filming Aronofsky and Lawrence start dating and there's mm-hmm. an age gap and like Lawrence was already a impossible lightning rod for people to not for... think about when watching this movie. Right. So that's the thing is because of that and because that relation like nobody liked that relationship even before anybody saw the movie. Everybody was just like, uh, like we were at such a point where like a director dating his much younger uh movie star was so distasteful and so reminiscent of other actually like bad things happening in the industry that a lot of i think um a lot of ugliness was read onto that relationship that maybe wasn't there who like who knows we don't really he also know didn't help because like he in the publicity tour for this movie like did these like vague but like unnecessary ways that felt like they were digs against her or making fun of her that like she needed to watch the Kardashians to calm down from the process of making this movie, which, like, she goes through hell in this movie. Um, well, didn't she, she, like, she ruptured her diaphragm or something? Something, right? Screaming, yeah. Screaming in this movie, right. So, like, all of that feeds into this very, very negative perception of him specifically, but also, like, of this relationship between creator and um, mm-hmm. someone who is subordinate to that creator and then because he used to be married to rachel vice uh you also then read into oh is this movie him writing about what a a disinterested uncaring inattentive husband he was to rachel vice which to me i think i think that's as much of a reach as the environmental stuff and uh, I feel like everybody who made me feel like I was a crazy person for reading an uh, ecological allegory into this movie, but then we're like, well, it's obviously about Rachel Weisz. And I'm just like, mm, 
Aren't we like? I would buy into that if Javier Bardem wore a scarf at any point in this movie. Um, but but what I think is, I personally don't buy I, that part of it. I think it's one of those things where maybe you know, unconsciously, the artist possibly puts yes something like that in there. Yes. But I also think. This movie falls into really interesting discussions of gender dynamics. And I don't know how much credit I want to give Aronofsky for that because I don't know if it's just like relying on the tropes of like, well, we always call it Mother Earth and God is regularly referred to in like male pronouns. So like, does it just fall on that? But there, there's definitely an interesting conversation to have about gender in this movie that like you want to give the movie credit for but at the same time I don't know how intentional it is yes I think I would agree with that I think a lot of the stuff when it comes down to um gender dynamics the sort of uh internal politics of a married relationship or a committed relationship and then also the ways in which an artist needs validation from Mm -hmm. the audience much more than they need. Uh, Because even, like, Bardem's relationship with Lawrence in this movie is, A, he's, like, largely inattentive. Anytime she says something to him, you barely get the sense that he even hears her. Um, He's always more paying more attention to, at first, Ed Harris, and then later to the sort of, like, crowds of people who are showing up. Mm-hmm. He's always sort of, like, leaving the room to go do something else. I love the – my favorite stuff about this movie is the sort of, like, the small touches of unreal of surreality before it gets fully crazy where, like, mm-hmm. all of a sudden he's on the third floor. And it's just, like, were you not just, like, walking into another room on the first floor? Like, all of a sudden mm-hmm. he's, like, just somewhere so much farther away than you think he is. And like, – That, like – organ in the toilet <laughs> yeah that's another thing that i was just like what's the symbol of that the like the little heart that squirts blood in the mm-hmm. toilet she like gets in touch with she like puts her hands on the house and it's like the heart the house has a literal heart the, and, yes and that the heartbeat mm-hmm. sort of like the heart sort of like shrivels and and sort of you know becomes more of a stone as the movie goes along um yeah i think all of that stuff sort of grows out of this central metaphor, right? But it also reminds mm-hmm. you that, like, these gender dynamics come from these very uh, old and ancient and uh, archetyp- archetypal stories that humanity has been telling themselves for, like, literally ever, where it's just, like, mm-hmm. a male godhead and a female um, mother figure, right? Like, that's the paradigm that we've had the whole ever. like of uh Michelle Pfeiffer's interactions or uh, Eve's interactions with Mother Earth uh Michelle Pfeiffer and Jennifer Lawrence feels like she's telling her she needs to have a baby like what she should do to have fun and she's, like she's... all of this it feels incredibly <laughs> toxically suburban to me yes well um it's in a way that's like very pointed. The movie is obviously on Jennifer Lawrence's side. And I right. think Darren Aronofsky is getting at something with that, but I just don't know how much of it is like this is the archetype he sets up and that's how the movie plays out, or if it's actually doing something interesting there. I think Pfeiffer's character is 
the point of the movie that that most feels like a living breathing character rather than a an archetype like obviously mm-hmm. yes she's obviously eve but like real housewives of the garden of eve that's what she is basically she's like first of all pfeiffer's fucking amazing in this movie from the amazing. second she shows up amazing. on screen she's all you can look at she looks absolutely directly through jennifer lawrence in every scene it's unbelievable um but also if you're still caught up in like this is a horror movie you you are probably thinking oh michelle pfeiffer's just going to like murder her at any point or start terrorizing her with a knife and functionally <laughs> you know? she's sort of ruth gordon in rosemary's baby without the like um ulterior motive although you're absolutely meant to think that she does have an ulterior motive but Mm -hmm. mostly she just like she has no boundaries she like wants to tell jennifer lawrence how to like be living her life she's so incredibly judgmental of her at all times about her uh sex life and why don't you want to have a baby and what are these underpants and like everything about that she like touches everything without asking the hideous green Mm -hmm. uh leafy green bra that happens after they uh, fall out of grace from the Garden of Eden slash Diamond Room, right? Like, all of the stuff mm-hmm. looks, like, very, like, symbolism everywhere. Um, but also, she's just, like, she's the worst. <laughs> like, she's just, like, the most... If you are in any way um, sort of allergic to strangers, she's mm-hmm. just, like, the worst possible example of that, where she's just, like, she's mean and she's judgy and she's, like... All up in, she's touching everything. She's, she's grabbing breaking the, shit, grabbing the handle she's on the, the frying pan. Even everything told that her is going to. to come, right? Like minus guns, <laughs> right? Right. Um, but Pfeiffer plays her in such a like she really builds a character out of her in very short screen time. Actually, she's not really in the movie for very long, and obviously, once uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character gets pregnant, she's not in it at all. Um, mm-hmm. But she's absolutely, utterly riveting in this movie. I would also say like, I don't want to sidetrack us with getting into the Oscar talk because we're not quite there, even though we're coming on an hour already, guys, this is going to be a long one guys like buckle up. You've already seen by this time. You've seen the the running time before you've even started the podcast. We haven't gotten to Exodus yet, guys. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We're still in Genesis. We haven't gotten to the gods and Kings. Um, uh, To talk a little bit about Michelle Pfeiffer, like, Michelle Pfeiffer was definitely wrapped up in, like, the early Oscar talk before people saw this movie, because, like, Michelle Pfeiffer is just one of those people that we know, as soon as a comeback can happen, she can very easily be an Oscar nominee or winner, too. Um, Especially for, like, someone like her who's coming back still in a supporting role, like, there was a lot of anticipation for what she would be doing, even though we didn't know what it would be. I would have. She been actually fascinated. gave one of the first uh, about how he got her on board for this movie because she's notoriously kind of cagey and hesitant. She talked about it. it was one of the first things for press for this movie. I think it was an it was an interview, um, interview magazine, and Darren Aronofsky was the one that interviewed her. Um, and they really only talk about the movie in oblique terms other than her saying, like, he really had to, um, like, sell her on what it was because the screenplay itself is, like, confusing right. and oblique. Right. I did read that. I did read that she read the screenplay and she wasn't quite sure what was going on. <laughs> Which, <Yeah>. like, fair. <laughs> like, you know. Uh, even though I do feel like uh, the sto- the story is so much out on Front Street that you almost distrust it. 
because mm-hmm. it's just like why would it be this uh like upfront like why like something else has got to be going on because like you're you're just really it's just like just they take the baby and they kill the baby and they eat the baby like it's just like it's, <laughs> it's just like it actually happens like what the fuck <laughs> yeah my imagination of what like the stage notes are in this script have you ever seen uh, Toxic, obviously. The toxic uh, Mimi I'm First uh, roast where she reads Raja's, like, writer for a performance on the Michelle Visage roast. Yes. It's very that. Where it's like, flames, flames, more flames. Yeah. Exactly. Right. That's Mother. That's the second half of Mother. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the movie doesn't work if it doesn't go completely insane. Because, like, the the bold, like, the, the broad strokes of the symbolism and the story ultimately don't work at all if you don't go completely over the line and over the top in the second half of the mm-hmm. movie, mm-hmm. I think. No, I agree. It's an um, exhilarating film. Like, it really, I totally get why people hate it, of course. Like, yeah. even watching it, I'm just like, man, like, you know, put tip me over a hair in the other direction, and I probably hate it too. But, like, man... Like if you, I mean, I the movie itself, right and, like, it's hard to, like, remove Aronofsky from it, because, like, if you're looking at it through the lens of this dude, it's like the movie is ego-personified, like, um, but if you can kind of just, like, get on the movie's level and, like, just yeah. purely open yourself to whatever it is giving you and, like, shut anything else out, like, I think this is a masterpiece i think it's aronofsky's best movie um again i'm one of those psychos that thinks that this movie is a comedy um (laughs) it it the through line from black swan to this is to me pretty obvious and Mm -hmm. thrilling that black swan black swan i do think is a is a movie that's maybe even more about the auteur and his muse even mm-hmm. though it comes at it that, but although that movie does center uh, the woman character as you're sort of like, um, you know, you're in her head and everything like that. But so much of everything that Vincent Cassell is doing in that movie is very much like these like impossible demands of the auteur and how it like just literally not only like drives her crazy, which would be like the simple way to do it, but like. Well, those manipulation tactics that he uses against his muses are the exact things that Aronofsky did to Portman and Mila Kunis, like he pitting them against each right. other. Yeah. Um, right, which is yeah. like, okay, so then is Darren Aronofsky an incredibly self-aware auteur about, about ways that he is um, uh, sort of wicked about this kind of thing? Or is he the least self-aware person at all and sort of writes these things into his films not knowing that that's what he's pulling from? Mm-hmm. And I think in Black Swan, it feels knowing. And I feel like in Mother, maybe not. He's so he's so dead set on the ecological allegory, which, again, I agree with, um, that it feels like, oh, did you like, did you write all this subtext in it in your sleep? <laughs> like, was this like, did you do that while you were maybe like did in a fugue state? Did you write this in a fugue yeah. state? <laughs> ah! Um, 
Yes. I think one of the reasons why people like lean into despising him a little bit is because it's so easy and he makes it easy to peg him as an asshole. But if you just look at the movies and you look the way he's evolved as a filmmaker, I think he's incredibly difficult to place. Um, yeah. His movies are largely pretty different. Like this one, I feel like is most akin to Noah, while it does really feel like this is the movie that we were promised by Black Swan. Like it feels like this is the progression from Black Swan, right? But after Black Swan, he goes and makes The Wrestler, which is those Black Swan and The Wrestler are actually really interestingly tied. And like he originally conceived them as one movie. Um, so it's like if you can get past like the genre and like some of the like uh more superficial aspects like you can see how those movies are like structured very similarly they're shot very similarly. Well, and the other um, thing and I think that makes him also hard to peg as, you know, from one film to another is he doesn't he writes some of his movies but not all of his movies. And like mm-hmm. um where like I think Pi is a fully original, right? I don't think that's based on anything. Requiem, he wrote the screenplay, but it's an adaptation of a novel. Um, Black Swan is not his script. The Wrestler is not his script. And then Fountain... Obviously, Noah is based on the Bible. And then The Fountain and Mother are, like Pi, um, just fully original stories. So... That to me, like I don't know, like it's really interesting He's to also try been and like draw that to, one. to various other things. Like um, he was originally attached to Jackie and just produced it, right? Um, but they're not his scripts, right? I can't think of anything off the top of my head where it's like it was announced for production and it was his screenplay. Well, he was supposed to do a Batman movie. Like he was one of those oh, like before right, Nolan, right. right? He had that whole uh-huh. like they were I think they were He was one of the like fifteen people that were courted for Batman Begins. Yes, but I think it it went even like farther than that. I think it was like really close to happening. But like I mm-hmm. am not as well versed in the Batman Forget stuff. Who was supposed to be his Batman? Maybe Christian Bale was his Batman? I don't, I don't remember. But it was definitely like a thing. He was it was very specifically, I think he was the one who was supposed to make Batman Year One, which was mm-hmm. um I think that's the name of a comic. I don't know. Again, we should have like Griffin on and and get him to to tell this whole tale because I'm sure he tells it flawlessly. Um, Can't believe we don't have a phone a friend on our 100th episode. I know we should have, um, <laughs> but it's interesting. So you talk about like because I think the through line from the wrestler to Black Swan is incredibly clear, and the wrestler is not his script, and Black Swan is not his script. But like the the body horror of both of them like black swan makes it body horror and the wrestler it's just like but he like the way he breaks his body in that movie and abuses his body in that movie Mm -hmm. for the sake of this like only thing he's good at which is also what nina sayers is doing like nina sayers like turns herself into a different species (laughs) because she's so desperate to make her body do the things that she needs it to do. And I don't know. And I guess you can draw a little bit of a through line from black. Like black Swan, I think is the only other movie on his, uh, in his filmography that you could call a horror movie. Right. So like that ties Mm -hmm. black Swan and mother together. Um, I don't know. It's really kind of fascinating. 
I, I there's something about Aronofsky's movies that make me think a lot of Steve McQueen. I think they're both hmm. filmmakers that make movies that you experience very physically. Um, like one of the things about Widows is like um, a lot of the political discussions that it it's having and like the kind of like body blows of the like violence in that movie. It's yeah. like it renders that very physically um, or he's like putting you in like an emotional uh, territory that makes you experience what a f- the physical right. um, like experience of what the protagonist is going through. Like widows feels like the first movie he's made that isn't about a fundamentally physical experience. Right. Right. Um, and I think Aronofsky does that a lot. Oddly not for The Fountain, which I'm surprised we haven't really talked about well, that The Fountain is metaphysical, right? So, yeah. Right, right. So how can it be? Yeah. Um, even though it's like, it's about cancer. and um, Well, and even The Fountain, though, has like the cum tree where like it is sort of alive, right? So like there's, there's even like body elements to that, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe we should save a lot of talk of the fountain because we could do we an could. episode on the fountain. We should. Um, it definitely had Oscar buzz, and like that production history is really interesting, really fascinating. It was originally Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett, yeah. and it had like a hundred million dollar budget. Um, so, and like it was, they had sets built, and the plug got pulled like right before they were supposed to start filming. Yeah. Filming, um, fascinating movie. Love that movie. Love Clint Mansell's score. Obviously, it's perfect. It's wonderful. Uh, when we talk about the divisiveness of Mother, though, I think we have to talk about Jennifer Lawrence fatigue because it was mm-hmm. it was a real thing. Like, obviously, it was a real thing, and also I think what her core fan base is was abs or like was at the time. Yeah, what is her core of, fan like, base? Suburban. It was a lot of suburban white women. Yeah, um, and like talk about the audience that's probably not primed to you know like this movie um I, i'm sure they it felt a certain way about right. the michelle viper scenes um from points i brought up before but like it all of the people that were attracted to jennifer lawrence because of the hunger games probably are a contributing factor to the f cinema score for this movie yeah. i would imagine yeah if anybody is showing up to this movie for that jennifer lawrence or even the absolutely... david o russell jennifer lawrence's like mm-hmm. she's it's interesting she's only really had a legit movie star career or film actress career like let's say let's i know she made the burning plane and i should made like she was in that television show but like let's say it starts at winter's bone right so winter's bone through mother she has like for a career that only lasts had only gone seven years at that point there's a lot of distinct eras and like uh segments right where it's like it's the hunger game stuff which does feel Connected to, but still separate from the X-Men stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the David O. Russell stuff. And outside of those things, she doesn't really do anything else. Obviously, like, Serena is a thing, but, like, that's still Bradley Cooper, so there's still, like, that tether. to our Serena episode. Yes. uh, That tether to the David O. Russell stuff. And then she makes that horror movie, House at the End of the Street, which almost feels like a remnant of... You know, a role she might have taken before she became, like, Oscar-winning. Right. They, like, pushed it to after Hunger Games was released because it was supposed to come out before. So it's, like, it's clearly trying to make money off of the presumed success of the Hunger Games. Right. And then the only other outlier to that 
comes right before Mother, which is Passengers, which is a movie that had a lot of Oscar buzz at the beginning. And then people read the screenplay and were like, this is fucking gross. And then people saw the movie and they're like, yep, gross. And um, (laughs) it's but like, I don't think I don't think people blamed that movie's failure on her. I don't think they blamed even if you hated Mother, I don't think most people hated Lawrence either. And yet it definitely felt like. Well, the immediate reaction was involved in like a stark drop off in public favor and critical favor, I would also yep. argue, for Jennifer Lawrence. Because I think also after the Joy nomination happened. My name's Joy, by the way. Yes, there was a lot of backlash to the Joy yeah. nomination, even though I think she's great in that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think probably her best performances are this and Joy. Oh, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not inclined to disagree. Uh, however, it's just like, it feels like it's also an amalgam of like people were tired of the pizza and farting persona. Right, right. Um, the friendship with Amy that, Schumer, like, like all this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, like it was a lot, and it felt like she was pushing it really hard. But like, it does also feel like there's an ingrained sexism in that response too. That always kind of like bristled against me. Like, it wasn't. Yes, we're annoyed uh, because like we're like the instant buy-in is getting to be like maybe too much. The pressure for her to have to define herself to try and stay ahead of a backlash mm-hmm. to me always felt present. And it always reminded me of the Anne Hathaway stuff, which is mm-hmm. Anne Hathaway being like, what kind of person do I need to be for you to not hate me? And I think with Lawrence, it's maybe less fear that you're going to hate her. Cause I ultimately don't think she craves approval quite as much as Hathaway does, but it definitely, definitely feel felt like with her, a need to define herself as like not a typical actress. Mm-hmm. So because because there is a knowledge that like ultimately there's a misogyny in this culture that will lead to people hating actresses. We've seen it with Hathaway. We've seen it with Paltrow. We've seen it with Julia Roberts over the years. We've seen it with, you know, so many of these actors. Meg Ryan. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think Lawrence. We saw it with Monique. We saw it with. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think Lawrence is. If she's not aware of it, then someone is telling her to be aware of it. Do you know what I mean? Because like, mm-hmm. her, I think her career and her public persona has shown an awareness to that. I mean, there was a whole lot. There was like her, um, the nude photos of her were taken away from her and leaked. Like there was, there's a whole lot of dynamics coming together for the public that it's like, it feels like the press is constantly hungry for her to interact with a lot of these dynamics. And it's like, how many interviews was like, has she given where people like want to ask her about pizza and getting stoned and like things like, it's all like coming together to be too much. And I don't feel like a lot of it is necessarily her fault. Right. It does feel now though, after mother and after um, red sparrow was an interesting sort of attempt to create something new that was hers. That wasn't Mm -hmm. a Marvel product that wasn't, you know, based on YA novels and that wasn't um, an, an auteur 
project like mother was that red sparrow mm-hmm. i think she tried to like make something that was hers and obviously um it's francis lawrence right um yes who was sort the of like guy that did the last hunger games movies right who uh obviously she seemed to have a real rapport with and so i feel like she was trying to sort of like you know run her ship at that point and it didn't work and so now it does feel like she's in dark phoenix but like it's of all the X-Men performances that, like, already she had sort of cultivated a reputation for being over the X-Men franchise. And, like, <laughs> Dark Phoenix is the epitome of that, where, like, the disinterest is palpable in that movie. And and now— I probably it, haven't seen an X-Men movie in a decade. I think First Class was the last one I saw. Yeah. So, like, I am only witness to the, like, photo slides that people post where it's, like— the mystique makeup is evidence of how over it Jennifer yeah. Lawrence progresses to be. Right. Where, like, she only allows herself to be put in it, like, once per movie. Like, during the right. ones. Yeah. It's like, the blue makeup cannot touch her clavicle. <laughs> it's like, clavicle up. But, like, so now it does feel like her career is in turnaround. Mm-hmm. And we're waiting well, she's for break. She's what the next back. phase will be. She has um, a movie that A24 will be releasing whenever they're releasing movies again. Right. Um, with a stage director. Um, I'm going to butcher it, so I apologize. It's Lila Neuberger? Sure. Um, Neugbauer. Neugbauer. Um, acclaimed stage director, first-time filmmaker. Um, so, like, that seems prime to be her comeback i don't know if i wonder how an awardsy campaign will be received yeah by people considering there was so much pushback to the joy nomination the problem with her career and it's not a problem with her but like the difficulty she faces is i think clearly she's doesn't have any an interest in being in a franchise right now she's done two of them she you know has seemed visibly, you know, fatigued by them. And yet, I think she also got burnt out on the Oscar campaigning stuff. By the time Mm -hmm. Joy comes around, she's not even doing any campaigning for it. And ultimately, there's no other option for a movie at this point because mainstream adult dramas or comedies don't exist anymore. For somebody mm-hmm. at her level of actress, right? We're like the things that she is best at as a performer are so few and far between, right? Especially ones that uh, focus on women. So it's like if she's going to stay in lead roles, right? Like where are those movies? Right. There's nothing there. There's no middle ground between awards bait or indie stuff. And like, I guess she could do like, or even like, I I hate the word quirky, but like quirky movies like the type of stuff that david o russell does right but like there's no like even if she wanted to try and do like a romantic comedy those don't happen anymore if she wanted to do Mm -hmm. a romantic drama those don't happen anymore if she wanted to do a legal thriller she would be so fucking good at a legal thriller like give her like what's what's you know the present day version of the pelican brief let her do that Mm -hmm. but that doesn't fucking exist anymore do we think the Elizabeth Holmes movie will happen? If it happens, I hope it's not Adam McKay like it's supposed to be. Yeah. But I do want to hear the words come out of Jennifer Lawrence's <laughs> mouth in the Elizabeth Holmes timbre. So no one has to lose a loved one too soon. 
<laughs> I mean, ultimately, we've gone. We we are not at the right point in the space time continuum where the right actress to play that role could, which is Mira Sorvino. Holy shit! Absolutely, the actress who was born and she was just born too early, and like the the cosmos didn't. Uh, overlap correctly because Mira Sorvino in the Romy White voice. So no one has to lose a loved one from Tucson yep. too soon. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Do you have some sort of businesswoman special? And so if we can't get 1995 Mira Sorvino, the next best thing, yeah, I think would be Jennifer Lawrence. But again, if that movie is to be a success, it's going to have to go for Oscars. Because mm-hmm. you're not going to, like, that's not a popcorn movie. That's not a movie that's going to get, like, you know, the Hunger Games suburban white women to the movie theaters, right? So mm-hmm. it's, I mean, yeah, the, the, the market is fucked. Anyway. She, I mean, like, I get that people are annoyed with her and whatever. I wish they would maybe interrogate it a little bit. Um, <laughs> yeah. But. I think the things that are great about Jennifer Lawrence as a performer are things like what she is doing in Mother that just don't really kind of get the credit that they're due because, like, for her performance to work as well as it does in this movie, it makes the movie work. If she wasn't a believable person, even though she's playing a concept and not a person the whole time in this movie and like responding to it in this incredibly visceral way that feels very human, that we can, you know, project a human feeling onto what like the environmental experience is or whatever you interpret the movie, the movie just flat out doesn't work. Um, And like she has to convey a lot of this, wordlessly or like without uh, a verbiage right like it's all her response it's an incredibly physical performance even though Mm -hmm. it's not an action performance but it's like it's a lot of very controlled physicality Mm -hmm. it's not like obvious like responses that she's telegraphing how she is feeling about things in an obvious way it's all very complicated um yeah and subtle yeah uh, i think she's incredible in this movie. she really really puts across a sense of panic in those mm-hmm. uh, as the as the crowd sort of like you know build up and build up and everything like that yeah um this movie was an f cinema score it was i believe maybe at the time the 19th movie ever to get an F cinema score. And, Not many. Uh, yeah. And we've talked about this before. It's like cinema score says more about the promotion of a movie than the movie itself. A, a bad you know, like, cinema were, score. Were people's expectations met. Right. It's a, it's a gulf between expectation and what you got. And normally uh, also it has to do with um, a dark, subject matter a unpleasant subject matter that kind of a thing or sometimes just an outright bad movie here's one thing i want to posit as the re one of the reasons why that f cinema score happened because all of these like many trailers are coming out very clearly projecting this movie as a horror movie yes and this movie opens two weeks after it opens, which is an incredibly oh, yeah. mainstream, incredibly popular horror movie that like delivers on a horror movie completely in a way that audiences 
like want in a way that like draws people together. Um, yep. And that movie was huge, absolutely huge. And they even like one of those little mini trailers we're talking about, they even made one that was attached to that movie that played in theaters with it. And if you are going to see it and you're given probably a bunch of horror trailers and you're given one for mother and you show up two weeks later to see mother expecting to have starring some type of experience tangential to that, you are going to despise the movie. Right. Starring Katniss Everdeen herself. Do you know what I mean? Just like, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a recipe for disaster. So Chris, I made a game for you. Um, we've been sort of following this game type a lot lately, but I think we have a lot of fun with it. Um, we don't have a name for it. Maybe our listeners can help us come up with a name for it, but it's the game where I give you three character names and you then tell me what movie all those three actors were in together. And the answers for this will all be movies that got an F at cinema score. (laughs) All right. Okay. Ready? I am. Okay. The F Cinema Score game. Okay. Um, the first question, your three characters are Billy Flynn, Ruth Stoops, and Penny Lane. Okay, so um uh Billy Flynn's obviously um Billy Flynn's obviously uh Richard Gere. Penny Lane is Kate Hudson. Is it Dr. T and the Women? It's Dr. T and the Women. Billy Flynn, okay. Richard Gere in Chicago, Ruth Stoops. We gotta do that episode. Uh, Dr. T and the Women? Yes, we do. Uh, Ruth Stoops is Citizen Ruth, Laura Dern, and uh, Penny Mm -hmm. Lane is indeed Kate Hudson and Almost Famous. All right, next one. Kathleen Kelly, Bruce Banner, and Dr. Ventress. Kathleen Kelly, I know. Bruce Banner. What Ventress? Ventress what? Dr. Ventress. I don't think I know that one. what What are the other two? Bruce Banner is a superhero. Why can't I remember? Dr. Bruce Banner, if that helps. Oh, uh, this is in the cut. Yes, work me through it. Kathleen Kelly is, uh, well, it's Meg Ryan, but uh, what is the Kathleen Kelly movie? You've Got Mail. Oh, You've Got Mail. Yes, F-O-X. Yep. Uh, Bruce Banner is Ruffalo in the Avengers movies, and Dr. Ventress is Jennifer Jason Lee in Annihilation. Mm-hmm. Annihilation. Um, did you know that Jennifer Jason Lee's characters in both In the Cut and Margot at the Wedding are named Pauline? Oh, fantastic. I don't know why I, I love thought that Margo was at the Wedding. All right. Next one. Your characters are Achilles, the Sheriff of Nottingham, and Beverly Weston. Um, okay, so Brad Pitt is Achilles. Sheriff of Nottingham is Alan Rickman. Beverly Weston is um, Sam Shepard. From? Uh, August Osage County. Correct. What were they all in together? You're right about two of those. Oh, so one of them is wrong. Which one is wrong? Which one is most likely to be uh, wrong? 
Normally when I steer you astray, it's when I give you a character who's been played by different people in different movies. Oh, because there's a billion Robin Hood movies. There's a different sharing of Sheriff of Nottingham. Okay, so Sam Shepard, Brad Pitt. Problem is a lot of F Cinema Score movies, if I remember correctly, are horror movies because horror movies always are like graded on the opposite of a curve. I will say <laughs> a lot score. of the horror movies that got F Cinema Scores I wasn't able to do for this game because the actors in it don't have uh other credits or like uh you know no recognizable yeah, enough yeah, yeah. character names yes uh brad pitt what has a hated brad pitt movie um i wonder how old this is because it's also sham sam shepherd i'm not even gonna begin to guess the different sheriff of nottingham's because there's it's the most recent of sheriff the of nottingham years. i'll say that the one with um, Taron Egerton? Yes. I didn't see that one. Yeah. Why would I? Neither um, did I. I will say I had to, I got to Sam Shepard, who is like the fifth lead in this movie, um, because the one of the more prominent characters has only one notable character name, and it's incredibly notable. It would have been a dead giveaway. But if you're not getting uh, it, maybe I can go there. So is it, um, I'm trying to think of, movies that brad pitt is in that's that are despised and i'm guessing well no wait what um the other andrew dominic movie uh-huh uh, killing them softly got an f cinema score yes that's the one i don't know why i've seen that movie and like i understand people that love it i understand people that hate it but i don't know that level of hate is it just i've never seen it but i if it's andrew dominic i imagine it's slow I mean, maybe. <laughs> I think if you're showing up for a mainstream Brad Pitt movie and you get some slow Andrew Dominic movie. Um, maybe. Or you think that it's going to be some hyper-violent thing. Then right. maybe there's that. Yeah, because also the person. Sheriff of Nottingham? Uh, ben Mendelsohn. In, Jesus yeah. Christ. Of I course, Ben do... Mendelsohn has probably played the Sheriff of Nottingham multiple times. I glossed over James Gandolfini because Tony Soprano is too easy. Okay, sure. next one. Your three names are Kimberly Wallace, John F. Kennedy, and Richard Nixon. Uh, Kimberly Wallace is Cameron Diaz. Bunch of Richard Nixon possibilities. I'm just going to say because it's Cameron Diaz, is it the counselor? It's not the counselor. That is not an F Cinema Score movie, shockingly enough. Uh, Kimberly Wallace is wow. Cameron Diaz, by the what? way, in uh, My Best Friend's Wedding. Oh, just for Okay, reasons. you said um, Nixon and who? John F. Kennedy. Two presidents. Um, Who are the big Nixons? played Kennedy? The big Nixons are Langella, Hopkins, John Cusack. (laughs) Um, Wait. I don't think she's been with Anthony Hopkins, but she's with Frank Langella in The Box. Correct. Is The Box an F Cinema score? The Box is absolutely an F Cinema score. And who's. I need to see The Box. Then who's my John F. Kennedy? Uh, James Marston. In? From The Butler. From The Butler, exactly. All right, next one. Obi-Wan Kenobi, Linda Porter, and Anne Boleyn. Oh, wow. Um, my mind is instantly going to Star Wars movies because Anne Boleyn was Natalie Portman in The Other Boleyn Girl. Obi-Wan Kenobi has to be Ewan McGregor. Linda Porter, just concentrate on that last name. Linda Porter. Uh, what other famous porters are there? 
Is it Ashley Judd for DeLovely? It's Ashley Judd for DeLovely. Ashley Judd is impossible You're to find. You're giving me a slew of movies for. that we need to do. Yeah. Um, Ewan McGregor and Ashley Judd were in... This is one of those movies that, like, blends in with, like, six other movies, unfortunately. Yeah, I know what it is because I can picture Ashley Judd in her wigs. Um... Is it the Eye of the Beholder? That can't be an F Cinema score. It's Eye of the Beholder, an F Cinema score, and Anne Boleyn is not. I don't remember it enough to know why it would be an F Cinema score. Yeah, I never saw it. Anne Boleyn is not, in fact, Natalie Portman, but Genevieve Bujold, who was Anne Boleyn in Anne of the Thousand Days. Sure. All right, next one: Cameron Poe, Barbara Bush, and Joan of Arc. Barbara Bush is um elizabeth banks for w no is that the wrong bush that's the wrong bush elizabeth banks is laura bush and w whatever they're all toxic and evil (laughs) um what was the last name again joan of arc is it mila jovovich not mila jovovich this was from a television movie oh well i'm never gonna get that um, Barbara, who the hell would have played Barbara Bush? Like Ellen Burstyn? Yep. Oh, okay. Yep. Ellen Burstyn is Barbara Bush in W. Ellen Burstyn in an F Cinema Score movie, huh? Um, I'll try and give you a better one for Cameron Poe. Hold on, I thought you might. Have. Yeah, that feels like something that I do know, but I I am not. This actor has a that. lot of character names that are very very obvious that I didn't want to throw to you, but uh. I thought Cameron Poe would be a nice middle ground. How about Caster Troy? Oh, Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage in Face Off. Cameron Poe is Nicolas Cage in Con Air. What the hell were Nicolas Cage and Ellen Burstyn in together? What indeed? Um, Think of notoriously poorly reviewed movies. Hmm. Even for Nicolas Cage, this one is pretty notorious. Oh, wow. Is it like Drive Angry? No. Ghost Rider? I can't imagine it's Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider had a sequel. Yeah, not Ghost Rider. Um, The Wicker Man? The Wicker Man. Nicolas Cage, Ellen Burstyn, and uh, Lily Sobieski played Joan of Arc. Oh, right. That I did actually know that she played Joan of Arc somewhat famously yes um not the bees yes exactly all right next one i'll see if you can get it with the harder name but then i'll give you the easier name if you can't okay uh jane goodell goodall scorny weaver general nope scorny weaver is diane fossey uh jane goodell god damn it general zod and daryl lee cullum oh uh general zod michael shannon it's got to be bug it's bug uh, Ashley Judd played a character named Jane Goodall in uh, that Hugh Jackman movie that she's in that I'm already forgetting the title of. No. Yes. No, 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 no. She is not allowed to be named someone Jane Goodall that's not Jane Goodall. Exactly. And then Daryl Lee Cullum is the most n- notable name I could find for Harry Connick Jr. character. That is his character in sure, Copycat. Sure. All right. Next one. Chili Palmer, Lucia Delury, and Mr. Orange. Travolta. Chili Palmer is Travolta and Get Shorty. Could genuinely be any Travolta movie in the past 10 years. Yep. Um, 
<laughs> is it gaudy? It's not gaudy, surprisingly. All these people showing up to Gotti and giving it a C minus cinema score. What's wrong with you? Lucia Delury um, is a character f- that would not be so notable, but like it's the the way that you pronounce her first name is like a bit in the movie. Okay. Chili Palmer, did you say it's from Get Shorty? By the way, yes, I'm I bad did. at just saying who the people are. I need to say what movie they are. Yes, Lucia Delory and what? Mister Orange. So somebody from Reservoir Dogs. Right. I don't remember what all of those are. Um, all right. I'll find you a better one for uh, for Lucia Delory. There's okay. one that's, there's a TV credit for this person that is like wildly obvious. Uh, oh, so they were in a popular TV show in a movie with Travolta that got an F cinema score. Indeed. Also hint, I saw this movie very recently. Oh, interesting. Ben was telling you that I was going to watch it. Oh, I forget whatever this would have been that had Travolta in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's got to be some type of crappy action movie. All right. Here's another one that what? you have to read into the character name. Um, Marcy Field. Marcy is the notable name there. Sorry, Marcy Is it Lisa Feld. Kudrow? Yes. For Marcy X? Yes. Uh, Lucia Delury is starring. Lisa Kudrow in uh, The Opposite of Sex, where Christina Ricci is like, your name is Lucia, yes. and you pronounce it Lucia. Like, what is wrong with you? Anyway. Good movie. Um, Marcy X, a movie I almost saw because Sherry Renee Scott is in it, <laughs> and I never saw it, probably for the better. Um, All right, so put it Lisa together. Lisa Kudrow and Travolta... Oh, they were in, I don't know the name of it, that Nora Ephron movie yep. that bombed yep. and had Oscar buzz. He's a, he's a local weatherman, and she is a lottery uh, mm-hmm. girl. They, like, uh, do they scam a casino or something? They scam the lottery. They scam the state oh, okay. lottery. Uh, the movie's called Lucky Numbers. I watched it last weekend. It is bad. It's so bad. Oh, really? It's a, okay. Nora Ephron directed it, but it's not from her script, and you can really tell. Yeah, she might have been hired. Yeah. All right, next one. Katie Heron, cool. Vivian Lee, and Dum Dum Dugan. Uh, it's got to be... Katie Heron is Lindsay Lohan in... Um, mean Girls. Uh, mean Girls, obviously. Uh, Vivian Lee is Julia Ormond in um, Hitchcock. My Week with Marilyn. My week with Marilyn, um, but it is I know who killed me. It's I know who killed me. Uh, Lindsay Lohan, Julia Ormond, and Dum Dum Dugan is Neil McDonough in the Captain America. The first. Captain Have you America seen movie. I Know Who Killed Me? No. I kind of want to watch I've it. I've never seen it. Let's watch it. Just the mess. All right, um, a few yeah. more. Uh, Joe March, uh, Casey Jones, and all right. This is one. Oh wait, no, sorry, not Casey Jones. Um, Joe March, Jimmy Gator. And George Villers the second Duke of Buckingham. <laughs> I'm gonna take a leap and say that it is not Sersha. I don't think she's done something that would get her an F cinema score. You're correct. And nobody's doing cinema scores for, you know, the seagull. You're correct. Um so it's gotta be Winona Ryder for the nineties little women. Yep. I say that knowing full well that there were probably several little women in the nineties. Yeah. Um I think you might be able to get Jimmy Gator as well, though I don't think it'll help you get the, what this movie is. 
Jimmy Gator, I do know that name, and I feel like... Because, like, Jimmy Gator, whatever character that was, had a catchphrase, right? Um, uh-huh. Yeah. <sighs> Try and go with, like... Okay, so, like, what were, like, the bad Winona Ryder movies of, let's say, the late 90s? I feel like it's going to be a horror movie. Uh-huh. Because... She did some, I think. Oh, directed by a very famous cinematographer. That's not going to help me. Yeah. Um, but I know that she had some... Wasn't there one that was held for like two years? Um, I don't know if that's... I know that it is that, but I can't place a poster or what the movie is. Yeah, shot is. in 1998, to... released in 2000. Yeah, there you go. Um, I got to figure out who Jimmy Gator is. I know this. Um... Oh, I'll just, I'll read you, uh, I'll give you a little help. Uh, I'll read you uh, from the Wikipedia page. The film was initially set for release in October 1999. However, due to a flood of end of the world and supernatural horror movies, such as End of Days and Stigmata, scheduled for release around the same time, a decision was made to delay the film. Sure. Um, So it's like End of Days and Stigmata. Um, It very much is. Don't know if that's going to help me. All right. Um... I, if I get who Jimmy Gator is, can we say that I might? No, I don't know if that's going to make me have it. I just got to figure out who this. Yeah, I don't think is. any of the other people are gonna are gonna <sighs> let you have it. Unfortunately, I may have to just give it to you. What was the third one again? Uh, George. Oh no, no 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 no! Jimmy Gator. Jimmy Gator is Magnolia. I knew it would be a movie like Magnolia. Yep. It is the great. May he rest, Philip Baker Hall. Yes. It's not going to help. Doesn't me help you at all with the movie. Absolutely not. No. No. <laughs> There was ever. Oh wait, he's still alive. I said that he was dead. I thought Philip Baker Hall. Died. I did. I wanted. Who I did. Magnolia recently I, died. My instinct was to correct you, but I didn't want to be wrong. Okay. Uh, all respect to you, Philip Baker Hall. I'm sorry. I thought you were dead. I love you. Um, so George Villiers, uh, the Duke of Buckingham, was Ben Chaplin in Stage Beauty. I don't know if that helps you any. Oh, ben Chaplin is not going to help me find anything. No, he's not. Uh, the movie is called Lost Souls. Sure. Yep. Yep. That sounds right. All right. Next one. Bruce Wayne, Rose Maxson, and Daniel Faraday. Daniel Faraday is Ruth Maxson. Rose Maxson. Did I say Ruth? Rose? Rose. Oh, then maybe I don't know that. Um, Daniel. Who are you thinking? Um, no, I, I lost it. Um, Maybe I was thinking of fried green tomatoes again. Uh, okay. Um, well, Bruce Wayne, though you can you can work. Yeah, Bruce Wayne. So either Michael Keaton, Christian Bale, Pattinson doesn't count yet. Um, George Clooney or Val Kilmer. Right. I would buy any of them having an F cinema score. If it's Clooney, it's Solaris. It's Solaris. <laughs> oh, it's Solaris. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, it does have an F cinema score. I need to see that. All right. So if it's Solaris, who's Rose Maxim? Uh Jennifer Ely nope. or uh, Viola Davis. Viola Davis and Fences. And Daniel Faraday Fences. is Jeremy Davies. I'm right. lost. All right. Two more. Will Scarlet Bun- That's how I know Faraday. You can't give me these TV ones. It's evil. Sorry. Okay. Let name a character from a movie <laughs> that Jeremy Davies is better known for. All right. Uh, 
You can't. Will Scarlet, Bunny Lebowski, and Deacon Frost. Uh, Bunny Lebowski is um, Tara Reid. Uh-huh. From the Big Lebowski. Deacon Frost. What was the first one? Will Scarlet. I feel like I know this too. I feel like Tara, um, Tara Reid maybe gives you all you need. I mean, Tara Reid is in Dr. T and the Women, I believe. Oh, yeah. I think so. But what's her, like, big, notorious, terrible movie? Uh... Where she plays a scientist. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. Directed by, Um, like, one of the, like, notorious directors of bad movies. Michael Bay. Uh, No, no. Like, way, like, down the food chain from Michael Bay. Oh, okay. So this is, like, trash. Like, known trash. Yeah. Um, Yes. Tara Reid. What were the other names? Will Scarlet, who is definitely a character from a movie that you know, and you guessed... Will Scarlet is um, Christian Slater. In Robin Hood and Prince of Thieves. Prince of Thieves. Um, The Robin Hood that fucks. Um, Yes. Aside from the Disney Robin Hood, because I know there's that whole subset of people that find Robin Hood from Disney Robin Hood, like, the sexiest character ever. Um, That's the Robin Hood that... um, uh, something that's not full fucking. Um, it's the hand. The Robin Hood. That the Robin flirts. Hood that gives you a quick handy. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Christian Slater, Tara Reed in a truly terrible movie. I don't think I know the name of it, but the director is it the Uva Bowl yep. moron? Yes. Um. Uh, okay. It's called. What is the movie? It's called Alone in the Dark. Sure. Christian Slater, Tara Reed, and uh. Um, Stephen Dorff, who was Deacon Frost in uh, Blade, one of the Blade movies, Blade Trinity, I want to say. Yeah, Blade movies are awesome. Yeah, good old Uva Bull. Okay, last one. Your characters are Tully, Mooney, and Richie Tozier. The bad thing is Tully is a really common name in a lot of movies. Uh Uh-huh. Tully, did you say Moon? Mooney. Mooney. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's not Charlize Theron, is it? Well, no, but Charlize Theron is uh, Marlo in that movie. Oh, right. Well, oh, so McKen- is it Mackenzie Davis? Never mind. Yes. I know better than that. I love that movie. It is Mackenzie Davis. I'm Tully. Okay, Mackenzie Davis. So this would have to be a fairly recent movie. Uh-huh. Um. Hmm. You know Mooney. Oh, it's um yeah, I saw this. It's the turning. It's the turning. Who's Mooney? Uh Brooklyn Prince, the Florida Project. Right. And Richie Tozier is um uh, Finn Wolfhard in the It movies. Finn Wolfhard, terrible actor. <laughs> Finn Wolfhard, uh good in the Goldfinch bye. Okay, yes, congratulations, you did terrible. a terrible what is wrong with you? I love you, but this this is this is a bridge I cannot cross. Good in the Goldfinch. We will talk about other they things. Sh- yeah, we'll talk about the Goldfinch eventually. <laughs> this that'll be the uh, that'll be the boxing episode that we have because it will be fully us just punching each other and fighting. Because I will I will break you of this uh, bad. Kind of like it. Kind of thought it was okay. All right, all right. I love you. Um, I want to talk about the Alliance of Women's Women Film Journalists for a second. They did not care for this movie. 
Um, the reception to this movie, it surprises me. This movie got a, is a 69% nice on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. And I that surprised me. I thought I was surprised it was that high. I think a lot of people um, appreciated the movie while still sort of like dunking on Aronofsky. Sort of like mm-hmm. threaded that needle, which was kind of interesting. Um, that number is not surprising to me if a good portion of those reviews came out of the festival circuit. Um but even okay, we saw this at a festival though, and like even that immediate reaction, there was a lot of hatred, like right off of the bat. Like, there was a lot of. It did get. I remember more what than hatred. I don't know. I caught a lot of like like knee jerk sort of like instant bad reactions. I want to read to you um, the first paragraph of Rex Reed's uh, review. I know every time I dip oh, into, I'm sure Rotten he Tomatoes, is. What does Rex Reed know what to do when a decision is split on a movie? <laughs> right, exactly. Rather than just going against the grain. Rex Reed uh, did not like this movie. The headline is, Mother is the worst movie of the year, maybe the century. And his uh, uh, opening Christ. paragraph, um, from the idiotic drug addict hokum Requiem for a Dream to the overrated, overwrought, and overhyped Black Swan, which I called a lavishly staged repulsion in toe shoes, this is me, Joe, saying that sounds amazing. Um, yeah. The films of whack job Darren Aronofsky have shown a dark passion for exploring twisted souls in torment, but nothing he's done before to poison the ozone layer prepared me for Mother, an exercise in torture and hysteria so over the top that I didn't know whether to scream or laugh out loud. This is Joe again. That also sounds awesome. That sounds amazing. Stealing ideas from Polanski, Fellini, and Kubrick, he's jerry-built an absurd Freudian nightmare that is more wet dream than bad dream with the subtlety of a chainsaw. That's a fucking stupid quote because what about this movie is kubrick i don't see that at all also everything about that makes this movie sound amazing (laughs) right everything like good golly all right the alliance of women film journalists really hated this movie they have uh their awards every year they gave mother three awards they were uh actress most in need of a new agent jennifer lawrence Hall of Shame to Darren Aronofsky, quote, and all associated with Mother, and most egregious age difference between the leading man and the love interest for Jennifer Lawrence and Mm -hmm. Javier Bardem. I do want to talk about the age difference thing. It's 21 years. Um, 21 years age difference. But doesn't that kind of set up a Like, yes, like, if you don't think about it and process it like yes it's off-putting it's gross it's um it, it's like it's commented it on within her the in text a dim- this is this is back to the point of it is commented on in the text and not positively um Correct. i don't think it's reinforcing anything about their relationship and i think it immediately sets up for a dynamic where it's like you don't want these people to work together right. And like that's kind of the point. And like, well, the fact it goes that, like, back to what I was saying earlier that like I don't know if that makes the movie work better in that it was chosen intentionally, or if it's like this accidental thing that makes all of Ar- what Aronofsky is doing work better. He keeps um, recreating the world with a seemingly younger wife every time. Like it's definitely mm-hmm. a th- a point in the movie, and it doesn't, and it's not sympathetic towards the Javier Bardem character. Like. Come on. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think anything the movie is doing is reinforcing that as good or showing... I don't think that this relationship is shown as 
being anything but toxic, and I don't think that the movie is okay with that. Um, right. I mean, I understand anybody wanting to have another opinion about it, and like, I'm sure there's a lot you could pull from this movie because, like, <laughs> you can. This is a movie designed to be a pulled part for its minutia, mm-hmm. but I don't think that the movie reinforce. If that is being pinpointed as toxic, I don't think that the movie disagrees. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. I think you're on the exact right track about that. This also was nominated for three Razzies, unsurprisingly. Worst Director, Worst Actress, and Worst Supporting Actor for Bardem, uh, which he also shared with uh, his Pirates of the Caribbean. Dead Men Tell No Tales role. Um, It lost Picture and Director both to the Emoji Movie, which, like... (laughs) The fact that they have a category where... Um, or no, wait, it lost director to Emoji Movie. Emoji Movie Emoji Movie also wins Best Picture that year at the Razzies. But the fact that you have a category where Darren Aronofsky, Darren Aronofsky for Mother is like in the same breath as the Emoji Movie just shows you, A, that the Razzies are stupid, but B, that they sometimes, even beyond just being stupid, have incredibly dull and bad taste. Like, Mm -hmm. just truly. Right. They just, they like uh, hopping on uh, a pile. Um, I know I just said this movie has nothing to do with Kubrick, but it does remind me of the Razzies nominating both Kubrick and uh, Shelley Duvall for The Shining, which is absolutely stupid. And like, talk about like two creatives who had an incredibly toxic relationship. Um, yep. And like Kubrick was absolutely in the wrong for how he treated Shelley Duvall. Um, but like, she's amazing in that movie. Yes. And like the shining's one of his best movies, yep. like yep. one of the most influential movies ever. And all you need to whatever. know about the Razzies is By they nominated movies. Jennifer Lawrence for mother. They nominated Dakota Johnson for 50 shades darker, which I've never saw darker, but like, She's good in Fifty She's Shades of Grey. Great in those movies. Like Dakota Johnson is is absolutely built for the Razzies to pick on and to completely mm-hmm. misunderstand. Uh, in that same vein, they nominated Katherine Heigl for Unforgettable, which is not a great piece of like trash camp. But it's like, also a sign that everybody in the Razzies' ranks are heterosexual. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That clearly you didn't get that it. we're still picking on Catherine heigl in 2017 says everything you need to know about the razzies um but unforgettable like is at least going for trashy fun like it's not like i wanted more out of unforgettable this is the one where it's her and rosario dawson um mm-hmm. essentially doing beyonce and ali larder in obsessed um uh but like it's just like to nominate it for worst actress. And of course they all lose to Tyler Perry for boo to a Medea Halloween, which I guarantee. Because not only do they hate women, they're homophobic. Right. Like also like they can't get enough of this joke that we're going to give Tyler Perry worst actress. Like it's uh, fucking hate the Razzies. We say this all the time. We've given them too much airtime anyway. However, I do want to ask you the question. What do you think of Javier Bardem's performance in this movie? I think... Because, like, the, I've read, like, some serious, like, cri- like critical assessment where they're like, actually, Javier Bardem's kind of terrible in this movie. Um, I don't think he's terrible. I think, I think he's asked to be absent emotionally in this movie a lot. Yeah. 
I definitely think it's an essential thing for this movie to work for these two screen for these screen partners to like not have any chemistry and to not seem like they make sense together. Like that is essential in making this movie work. Yeah. But at the same and like I don't think that the role really gives him as much to do. Uh, obviously as it gives Jennifer Lawrence to do, but like at the same time, he does weirdly feel a little miscast. In what direction would you cast that role differently? Somebody who is less charismatic than he is. Like it feels like he's working against his like natural gifts in a way that doesn't complicate that character. Um, yeah. or this archetype that he's playing. Did anybody give um, Aronofsky shit for casting, quote-unquote, himself as Javier Bardem? <laughs> like, everybody was so ungenerous to Aronofsky throughout that entire reaction to that movie, I'm, I'm not surprised it didn't go in that I mean, too. he gave them reason to. Again, if they had just put a scarf and, like, a fitted trench coat on Bardem, I think we could have interpreted it differently. Um... Yeah, I don't know about Javier Bardem in this movie. It's my one sticking point. I think he's I the... even kind of like Ed Harris, who's like just kind of a bumbling, weepy idiot throughout the movie. Yeah. I think you're asking from Bardem a lot of again, just sort of like absence, inattention, um, you know, wanderingness, like he's and that's so atypical of what he's good at. Like, he plays people that, like, you side with them. Or even if they're an outright villain, they're incredibly compelling. But um, I think that, me- that to me, is evidence that he is doing a good job. That, like, it's Javier Bardem. And by the end of the movie, you're just like, you fucking piece of weak, like, sh- like shit. Just, like, you're so, yeah. like, when she she, by the end of this movie, is sort of, like, snarling at his ineffectualness and his his inability and unwillingness to do anything to keep these people at bay and ultimately the god figure in this movie is revealed to be powerless and and ineffectual and that javier bardem is able to sell that to me i think that's i think that's a good reflection on him and his performance mm-hmm in my opinion i'm sure i'll have a lot to marinate on as i continue to watch this movie a million times um do we want to start sort of going into final thoughts on mother and then we can get into uh our our as we approach the two hour mark yes yes i think well i think we can talk a little bit about um oscar and i do think paramount is an interesting yeah this movie really kind of fucked it up for paramount did it not we will be we will be the oral historians of Paramount's disastrous 2017 awards campaign. Yeah. Um they had a really like when Mother is your best um effort for a movie that's so publicly reviled when it's like the best reception of anything. What else did they have, have that year? Just remind me. Suburbicon, right, which, which we did an, an episode on, yeah. made even less money than Mother did. Yep. Um, surprise, that's not an F cinema score. Yeah. Utter piece of toxic shit. Um, and then they also did another toxic movie in, uh, Downsizing. 
Wow. All three of those movies were at Toronto. I saw all three of them there. We talked about this a little bit in the mm-hmm. Suburbicon episode about, yeah. Yeah. We'll save a little bit of the downsizing talk because like we will absolutely eventually do a downsizing episode right. whenever I can muster the courage to watch that movie again. Right. Um Downsizing was interesting in that like it played Venice, Telluride, and Toronto, and each progressive festival it went to, the reaction was getting worse and worse. <laughs> but like you had people in Venice saying, because I believe it opened Venice that year, people being like the best movie of the year, but like these real real high praise for right. it. And then by the time it got to Toronto, everybody was like, that was an absolute nightmare. Yeah. Um not as bad as like Waves got, where like Waves had like incredible like support out of Telluride, and then right. and like people are saying it's an Oscar movie, and then when it gets to Toronto, and then by the time of opening, people were like, I don't know about this movie. Things are like divided with that movie, but by the time Downsizing opened, like that was absolutely like noxious. <laughs> yeah, the fumes coming off of, and then movie. so shortly after this awards campaign is when they sell off um cloverfield paradox to netflix and right Mm -hmm. that was the progression and they sold something else to someone too right they like they seemed for a while that they were just like going to get out of the theatrical yes that's what it was annihilation they sold all of the overseas rights to netflix and then they still opened it here it seemed for a minute like they might go under right and there was a lot of stuff with um i'm bad at like the business end of this kind of stuff honestly Mm -hmm. but like there was a lot of there was a lot of talk that like this might be the end of paramount and it was it was a tricky time whereas like maybe if they had pushed annihilation to be their christmas movie like who knows if people want to show up to see that movie at that time i would have loved to have seen what annihilation would have done if it opened at a different part of the year than february Mm -hmm. um yeah it's a tough movie, so like right. I can't imagine it would have gone all the way with Oscar no, to like no, nominations outside of maybe like visual effects, um, because like right. it's nothing but a depression and suicide allegory, right. guys. Um, but right, I do feel like sound and visual effects could have been gettable if you released that movie in November. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know. Like it's not gonna. I don't know. That's a movie that what that I I get the point of we're gonna release it early in the year and let people sort of meriting on it and discover it and i think that is a definitely a movie that benefits from watching it multiple times mm-hmm. but yeah ultimately that's never going to be you know 2001 a space odyssey like in terms of oscar success it's just not going to happen yeah i don't know as far as like putting the button on <clears throat> the mother conversation i think we are evidence of people who i think this movie does better if you go into it more blind or at least open to uh whatever it's going to throw at you than having some type of expectation yeah um of what it is right um it's kind of wild to me that obviously aronofsky because of black swan which is really such an oscar anomaly for this like movie that made a hundred million dollars and is what it is that it could carry it on to like early buzz and like predictions for like i i guess it's just hilarious to me with what this movie ended up being that we ever considered it in that way at all 
Yeah, it's but again, like you see why it looks good on paper. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, but yeah, you're right. In the in retrospect, it's very kind of funny. Um, I'm paging through my notes. I want to mention very quickly the sound design in this movie is amazing. Like the ways in Incredible. which like voices get muffled and the the house is making sounds everything where like the whenever the diamond the is in the room there's this weird like chimey sound effect that sounds like if you're dropping coins into a bucket of coins um mm-hmm. and that persists even later in the movie when they go into that room to so she can deliver the baby and the diamond is obviously gone by this point. It's been destroyed. Um, but even still, whenever in that they're in that room, that little chimey like sound effect remains. It's so it like it it's weird. You don't know what's going on. Um, if you want to like really get the full like sound experience of like this movie sounded incredible in a theater, but like this sounds kind of basic as a recommendation. Watch this movie with headphones in. Um, because it's intense. That's how I like. I watched it on my computer this time. Yeah, and with headphones, felt like a really like uh, attuned experience to every bit of minutia of what's going on in the sound design of this movie. And it's like very meticulous and very unsettling. Yeah. The other thing I wrote down um, that we haven't talked about is in the second home invasion of the movie when things are really really getting bad she picks up the phone and calls 911 and i literally just wrote down oh no another white woman calling the cops oh jesus christ um obviously that didn't play into the movie at all but i was just saying that's where we are at in our current moment anyway um any more thoughts from you yeah love this movie would have also love. nominated it for production design um Oh, absolutely. The house is amazing. They filmed it in, I want to say, Quebec. Uh, On a set. I have, like, one of those she-she art books that, like, details, like, the set and the shooting, specifically of the home invasion sequence. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of staggering. Yeah, I love this movie. I I hope people end up revisiting it in years to pass, and it's like, I hope its legacy is not uh, Aronofsky's ego. Um, I think I this hope that movie people can... deserves a an assessment that isn't quite so obsessed with Aronofsky and Lawrence as a couple. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, that's what I will say. I'm not going to be all justice for Darren Aronofsky. He's fine, but like, I do feel like there was a uh, fundamental ungenerousness towards him in the movie that I think... That he also seems completely ill-prepared for. Um, sure, in terms but of again... doubling down and explaining the movie, that I also think, like, that's another reason why I would like there to be a reassessment of the movie eventually, because, like, just because he says this is what the movie is about doesn't mean that's how you have to take that this is what this movie is about. Or you can't have jumping off points that don't fit inside his box of interpretation. But um, again, in that way, I don't think he's very much different than a lot of writer-director auteurs of his ilk. Like, I really don't. I, I mean, just... sure. The, the The bit of nuance I would push back on is... I don't think there's a whole lot of filmmakers coming out so explicitly saying what their movie, what they think their movie is. I see. And I will say, I think if what he was saying the movie was about wasn't 
that it's an ecological fable, people would have accepted it differently. People would have at least brushed brushed past it. I think because he was saying it's a fable, it's a it's an allegory about mm-hmm. Mother Earth, people thought that sounded silly and didn't want right. to. Well, and even two and a half years ago, general consensus about climate change was still even very different um, than what it is today in terms of acceptability um, and like open discussion and acceptance. Like I, 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 even if it was subconscious, I would probably argue that him saying this is what this movie is about and people not wanting to deal with that or approach it or accept it as fact played into some subconscious hate for the movie yeah i think that's true maybe that's cynical of me to say but no i'm sure that's some of the visceral reaction you can't tell me what to think dad um let's move on into so it's our hundredth episode as we've mentioned quite a few times and to commemorate this uh a few uh, one of our re- one of our mailbags that we had done previously asked us to choose our best uh essentially what's our oscar ballot from the pool of films that we had covered up to that point and so we thought with this being our hundredth episode that we would do that task again Calling from all 100 films that we have uh, talked about on this head Oscar buzz. And since we are very comfortable, very comfortable with being self-indulgent, um, <laughs> we will do that now, Chris. And I I've... think we said that we would do it again, but I forget what the marker was. And we were like, you know what? It's the 100th episode. We probably will be doing our ballots again at some point in the future. So. Yeah. We're we're just doing all all one hundred. Sorry if we promised something else previously. This this is this is what we want to do now. All right. So I have I have a top ten films, and then I have five in each of the acting categories. Okay, I have the same. All right. Do you want to lead off with our favorite category, best supporting actress? Uh, sure. Let's do that. Hold on one second. I'm just putting these so i i'm rearranging so i can do my best picture choices um okay. alphabetically ah i ranked Sorry, mine and i'm I just am... gonna do mine as ranked but go with god uh I, i'll do alphabetical i think if you listen back you could probably figure out what my rankings are okay. all right best supporting actress for me i have in alphabetical order at the lady chablis for midnight in the garden of good and evil a wonderful pick i have anna devere smith for the human stain yes i have uh britney murphy for riding in cars with boys it's a great pick naomi watts not from our naomi watts miniseries but naomi watts and i heart huckabees uh-huh and oprah winfrey for lee daniels the butler i'm gonna tell you we have three in common all, all right, right well right give me bat. give me your five uh, I have also Anna Devere Smith in The Human Stain. I have Naomi Watts in I Heart Huckabees. So good. And I also have Oprah Winfrey in Lee Daniels, The Butler. To those I add, I'm pretty, my recency bias in this category is showing. I have Hope Davis in Proof, which we discussed last week. And I have Michelle Pfeiffer in Mother. I almost put Michelle Pfeiffer in there. So of your five, who would win? Of those five... I would probably give it to Naomi for I Heart Huckabees. Not a bad winner. I am almost tempted to give a tie, but uh, my winner is going to be Brittany Murphy in Riding in Cars with Boys. That's a good one. I had tempted a couple... to give it to the Lady Chablis. 
no there's no bad there's no bad option there i did have to leave off a few i just did want to mention i audra mcdonald was a close sixth for ricky and the flash she was on my long list too my long list who else did i hold on let me flip a page my long list had uh roma mafia for uh double jeopardy amazing kim basinger for pret-a-porter Shirley oh, MacLaine for in her shoes. I think next next time we do this, I'll I'll have Basinger on there. I knew I was leaving someone off on there. I mean, it's hard. It's impossible not to. Kirsten Dunst, Dan, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Mona Lisa smile. Awesome. Sigourney Weaver in the ice storm. Uh, I did have Sigourney Weaver in there. I had Shirley MacLaine in there that you had. I had Audra McDonald. I also had BB Newworth for Tadpole. It's a good one. It's a very good Nicole one. Kidman for the Paperboy. I'm really. If anybody's gonna pee on him, it's gonna be me. Yeah. If anybody's gonna pee on him, it's gonna be me. Rosario Dawson for Rent. Beyonce for Cadillac Records. Yeah. And Cher for Burlesque. I was wondering if you would put uh, if you would put Cher on your list. That's a. Re- that's... I'm actually kind of mad that I didn't put Kim Basinger from Predaportay. She's so great. <laughs> She's so good in that. It's truly. Then she should have her Oscar for pret porte Okay. Yeah. Best Supporting Actor, I'll lead off this time. I have... This was a tough one for me. This one, I had a seven-wide list that was very tough to lop two off of. Um, But my five ended up being Morgan Freeman for Nurse Betty, Jude Law for I Heart Huckabees, Matthew McConaughey for Magic Mike, Mark Ruffalo for Zodiac, although also uh, you could have him for In the Cut, but I have him primarily for Zodiac, and Mark Wahlberg for I Heart Huckabees. Fantastic. We overlap on three again. Nice. Uh, my lineup would be James Gandolfini for Enough Said, Jude Law for I Heart Huckabees, Matthew McConaughey for Magic Mike, Mark Ruffalo for Zodiac, and Jeffrey Wright for Cadillac Records. It's really good. Yeah, I had my long list had Gandolfini and also Ben Wishaw for Cloud Atlas, and those were two very late cuts for me. Mm. also gene hackman for get shorty was on my long list yeah i debated some get shorty on there um get Get shorty was like a a very close to being a nominee in like several categories for me i will say (laughs) like it was my 11th film it was my sixth best actor yeah i would give the win to mcconaughey I would give the win to jude law for huckabees both of my supporting wins would be for huckabees but mcconaughey is a close second i think that's All a right. good lineup. That's like uh, supporting actor lineups are notoriously uh, I bitch about them all the time. But like these would be really good lineups mm-hmm. for any of those. All right, absolutely. I'll lead us Give off me... with actress. Yes, do that. Uh, also hard to pare down. Yes, as Jesus I'm Christ. Sure you yes, can imagine. Uh, I think we're gonna have some overlap here. However, I do think so. I agree. I'm not fully happy with my best actress lineup. I feel like it could be a little bit more exciting, but like when I was true to like what I wanted to actually pick, this is what it ended up being. I have Joe Allen for the Ice Storm, Cameron Diaz for In Her Shoes, Julia Louis Dreyfus for Enough Said, Nicole Kidman for The Others, and Meg Ryan for In the Cut. <laughs> we overlap four for five in this one. We're really right. our minds, our minds indeed. Um I had a lot of... I almost put Jennifer Lawrence for Mother on this. I didn't. I I almost almost put Joan Allen on this for The Ice Storm, as you did. I almost put 
uh, Ashley Judd for Double Jeopardy on this. But I have, just like you, I have Cameron Diaz in In Her Shoes, Nicole Kidman in The Others, Julia Louis-Dreyfus in Enough Said, and Meg Ryan in The Cut. And to that, I have my one double nominee on this uh, ballot, Michelle Pfeiffer, for Frankie and Johnny. Almost put her on there, too. Yeah. It's a good long list. I mean, I Zellweger in Nurse Betty, Tony Collette in In Her Shoes would be great, Gwyneth in Proof, Shirley MacLaine in The Evening Star, Jessica Chastain in Miss Sloan, Blanchett in Truth. It's a, it's a good list. Who are you giving it to? Oh, gosh. I know. It's kind of hard. I, again, I would be down for a tie for my ballot, but I think I'm giving it to Cameron Diaz with my runner-up being Meg Ryan. I think Cameron Diaz is my runner-up to Kidman for the others. But, like, I don't know, though. I do fucking love Cameron Diaz and In Her Shoes. Maybe I agree with you. Maybe that's what it is. It's a very tight race. It's a very tight five-way race. Just imagine a real-life scenario where either, where the four that we have in common, and then either uh, Pfeiffer or, who's your fifth one again? Uh, Joan Allen. Joan Allen, right. Like, either one of those lineups in a real-life scenario would be utterly amazing. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Um, I'll lead off with Best Actor. Actor... So unsurprisingly, uh, the easiest one to pare down for me. In fact, I was um, my fifth place one. I'm like, mm, like, I don't know. Anyway, uh, Jeff Bridges for The Door and the Floor. Jake Gyllenhaal for Zodiac. Almost Channing Tatum for Magic Mike. Forrest Whitaker for Lee Daniels, The Butler. And Robin Williams for One Hour Photo. Mm, uh, we only overlap on two here. Okay. Uh, um, I have Jeff Bridges, The Door and the Floor, Nicolas Cage, Bringing Out the Dead, yeah, he's Mark on my Ruffalo list. in The Cut, my only double nominee, mm-hmm. uh, Channing Tatum, Magic Mike, and Denzel Washington, Courage Under Fire. Denzel was also on my long list. Travolta was on my long list for Get Shorty. Um, Gyllenhaal also on my list for Brothers. And we've Jason done a lot of Jill and Hall. We didn't mention it the last episode, but you text me like we've maybe done as much Jill and Hall as we've done Claire Danes. I don't think it's that much, but so we have done a lot. Our Jill and Halls are um, proof, love and Wait. other drugs, love and other drugs, rendition, rendition, brothers, Zodiac. That's five already. We've got, like, six Claire Danes. Right, but, like, it's close. Like, it's real close. And, like, there are other Gyllenhaals that we'll end up doing. Yeah. It's worth keeping an eye on, for sure. All right. Best film. You've done yours alphabetically. I've done mine uh, ranked 1 to 10. I love the chaos of this. I love the Discord. It's truly um appropriate given this episode we agree too much on this movie this episode we need to find chaos and discord where we can (laughs) all right not just in the 60 second plot description all right why don't you list yours alphabetical and then i'll i'll come at it with the ranking all right cool my alphabetical rankings for the best 10 best films that we have covered uh bringing out the dead the door in the floor enough said the ice storm I Heart Huckabees, In Her Shoes, In The Cut, Mother, The Others, and then my winner would be Zodiac. All right. I think that is 
I was trying to count how many uh, similarities we have, but maybe you can while I go. All right. <sighs> All right. I almost now want to tinker. Ooh, no, no, you have to do, you have to give me what your list was. Otherwise, Kim Basinger would be on my supporting actor. That's for... true. No, that's true. Okay. All right. Mine are number 10 is Mother. Number nine is Cloud Atlas. Number eight is In the Cut. Seventh is Enough Said. Sixth is The Ice Storm. Fifth is In Her Shoes. Fourth is The Others. Third is I Heart Huckabees. Second is Where the Wild Things Are. And my number one is also Zodiac. We overlapped on eight titles. Amazing. Amazing. And I almost had The Door on the Floor. I was really, really teetering on whether I wanted The Door on the Floor. Crazy milestone. A hundred episodes. Joe, we've talked about a lot of movies. We sure have. When we first we started. We have a ton in the hopper. Like, you guys, we are not running out anytime soon. I will we're say not. Yeah. We're, we're still. Oh, this is a marathon, not a sprint. That's when right. we first started and I was explaining the concept to people, like, in my social circle of what it is, they're like, yeah, but that's not going to be a lot of movies. And I'm like, no, <laughs> just oh, you, you fool. wait, Henry Higgins. Uh, <laughs> because when I remember things like, uh, I, I think one of my examples that I'm like, we're probably not, you know, running on fumes until we get to like creation, the Paul Bettany movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly the kind of movie. You'll know the like, death knell is coming when we get to creation, guys. When we'll we be... end up doing The Vintner's Wife, that's when you'll know. <laughs> we haven't even gotten know. to things like Goya's Ghosts. Bagger Vance. Collateral Beauty. Indeed, Collateral Beauty, yeah. Okay, so we've done all these movies. I want to take just a short time to like reflect back on some of them. Do you have episodes that you fully forget we did? Oh, yes. Uh, going through this, I... Wait, there's one... I forget what movie it was one time. You were like, we could do this. And I'm like, buddy, we've, we've done that. I fully always forget that we've done an episode on The Fifth Estate. Absolutely can never, ever, ever remember that one. Um, I forget that we did Summersby. <laughs> I, I will know never that forget if I'm Summers thinking Bee. back, especially early episodes, that that was a good episode. But I fully forgot that we did that when I was doing my research for this. Yep. Um, I don't know. Random Hearts. It's tough to remember. Random Hearts. <laughs> Random Hearts is the episode where we were fully circling the drain of like, oh God, what are we going to talk about with this right. movie we hated? I think we spent probably a good 20% of that episode talking about that department store scene. <laughs> yes, that's right. Now I, okay, now that you've mentioned that. Also, I remember not a single thing we had to say about 1492 Conquest of Paradise. <laughs> we talked a lot about Enigma. Oh, sure. Of course we did. Yeah. Yeah, 100 episodes. It's a lot. I stand by all of them. I stand by everything I've ever said in any of them. So Yeah. Um, uh, we also, I want to take a moment, and I know you do too, to shout out our many guests we've had over these 100 episodes. We have had some really fantastic people talking to them us all. about various movies. We love you all. Uh, just want to take a second to shout out uh, Nick Davis, Nathaniel Rogers, Katie Rich, David Sims, Tara Ariano. Gavin Mevius, Bowen Yang, Bobby Finger, Pamela Ribbon, Nate Jones, Richard Lawson, Erica Mann, Kevin O'Keefe, Jordane Searles, Danita Steinberg, 
Cameron Sheets, Matt Jacobs, Matthew Rodriguez, Kevin Jacobson, Oliver Sava, uh, Griffin Newman, Rob Shear, just all of you. We love you all. We love you all. all. Thank you for joining us on this crazy journey. Hopefully we'll have some guests uh, back soon. Joe, is there anything uh, that you are also excited about that we didn't mention title-wise that you hope to hit another milestone with? We were saving this movie for a big milestone. What are some, like, milestone movies that you can think of? Oh, that like like the big ones, like the big hitters that were still listen, out there? Listen, guys, we got. I know when we've done like listeners' choice, nobody ever goes for the shipping news. Sorry, you're going to deal please, with us doing the shipping. Please let news. us do the shipping news at some point. We're dying for it. We really we, want to. do We'll it. do it. We've done 2001 too recently, but we we're doing also. The shipping news. And I know we just this week did a Michelle Pfeiffer movie, but I want to do a Thousand Acres so bad. I don't know why I want to do a Thousand Acres so bad, but I really do. I'm uh, surprised nobody guessed that we would be doing a thousand acres for episode 100 i don't think anybody said that because i think we've been saying since episode one we would yeah. be doing a thousand acres and the other one is the one i always mention with uh if in the event that we ever do do a live show which again just imagining people gathering in a place is so science fiction to me at this point but um uh it's an idea we've had in our long range you know sites no definite Big plans, dreams. certainly for it Big dreams. Maybe one day we'll do a live show. And if we do, I've always said that's the collateral beauty uh, mm-hmm. moment is to do that. So we'll see. We'll see what how it goes. <laughs> if we do collateral beauty, um, uh, Ashton Evans, you are coming on and you are talking about that movie with us because you you made me watch that movie. <laughs> Don't forget to notice it. Um, collateral beauty fam. All Get it. in my mentions. Um, exactly. All right, 100 episodes. We've kept these people hostage for two and a half hours. We should let them go. Thank you all, all of our listeners. Um, You guys, we love you. You You rule. Thank you for supporting us. Thanks for sticking around for 100 episodes or joining late, going back to old episodes. Either way, we really appreciate your support and sticking to our um, lovely bunch of coconuts that we call a podcast. (laughs) Um, Indeed. Oh, shit. (laughs) Chris, we still have an IMDb game to do. We should to read. Oh boy! Oh god! We All right, we'll this. do this as quickly as possible. All right, we got this, Chris. Quickly as possible, tell them how we do the IMDb game. All right, the IMDb game—that's how we end every episode. A hundred of them now um, with the IMDb game, where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they're most known for. If any of the titles are, are television or voiceover work, we mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles released use as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints and home invasions of people breaking your sinks and trashing your walls and killing your baby. Indeed. All right, I'm going to quiz you first. Arr! You're not even going to get a choice. Um, I picked from Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream, a title I can never say without sounding like Elmer Fudd, um, from (laughs) Requiem for a Dream, the star of that movie, actually, uh, besides Best Actress nominee Ellen Burstyn, uh, is Jared Leto. So give me Jared Leto. All right. Suicide Squad. Yes. Uh, Dallas Buyers Club. Yes. Is there television? No. All right. More voiceover. Uh, Ooh. What else has he been terrible in? Uh, well, is Requiem for a Dream in there? Yes, I gotcha, bitch. <laughs> ah. Uh, you always think that that's a trap. It is not something I intentionally do. Right. Um, uh, 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 Blade Runner 2049. No. 
Um, 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 Panic Room. No. All right. Year is 1998. I did not remember him being in this movie. I'm sure he's in this movie for like half a second. Uh, what, what? Okay. So this is, this is even before Fight Club. Um, there's a lot of people in this movie for like half a second. Like the cast list is full of names, but like, I defy you to remember more than a few of them in this movie. Damn. I was going to say Urban Legend next. Um, no, far more prestigious than Urban Legend. Yeah, I mean, Rebecca Gayhart and Tara Reid does not count as a bunch of names. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, what were the big uh, prestigious movies? That movies? Yeah. yeah. Is it an Oscar movie? It is. He's not in Shakespeare in Love. He's not in Saving Private Ryan. It would be really funny if he was in Life is Beautiful, um, but he is not. Uh I guess there's a lot of names in the Thin Red Line. He's in the Thin Red Line. Of course he is. Yep. It's the Thin Red Line. Weirdly enough, that's his the fourth Jared Leto known for. Psychotic, but here we are. Uh, well, I also went down a similar route as you. However, I went with Darren Aronofsky's other mothers. No, I did not choose Barbara Hershey because even, she has a movie that even I have not heard of on her <laughs> known for. So I wasn't going to do that to you. All right. I went with the other Darren Aronofsky mother. I went with Ellen Burstyn. You did go with Ellen Burstyn. Okay. Is Requiem one of them? Yes, it is. Is Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore one of them? Yes, it is. Okay. Her Oscar is, win. Is The Exorcist one of them? Yes. Okay. Now, this fourth one is going to be fucking bug nuts, I can tell. Okay. Um, Ellen Burstyn. What's, like, something she's been... And it's not television, right? Not television. Okay. Ellen Burstyn. God, now all I can think of is the Wicker Man, because we were talking about the Wicker Man earlier. Um, (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) I'm not going to give you a chance. You don't even have one... Did you say Yaya? Yeah. No. Oh, damn it. That would have been really funny. Um, it's probably something where, like, she plays somebody's mom and, like, gives, like, really good advice or something. Um, <laughs> you think she's played a lot of those roles. She really hasn't. She really hasn't. Maybe that's more television. Um, and even still, when she plays somebody's mom on television, it's usually just, like... She's a pistol. Um, the Burst. Ellen Burstyn. What if we called her that? What if that was our uh, fun little nickname for Ellen I'll Burstyn? give you a, not a hint, but like I'll throw one out there that I think you might use as your next guess. Uh, Old Murph is not on here. Oh, damn it. Old Murph. Actually, it's not Old Murph. It's Murph in, in parentheses, older. If I ever do Murph the older. movie character name for Ellen, for an Ellen Burstyn movie, know <laughs> this, that I will absolutely pull out old Murph. Like, one million percent. <laughs> Murph. Murph. I have never had more fun with anything that I've had with old Murph. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so good. All right. Um, it's got to be something recent, right? It's got to be. It's like, um, oh, She's in another uh, Aronofsky movie. Is it The Fountain? It is not The Fountain. Your year is 1971. Motherfucker. Okay. Um, 71, so before the Oscar. 
Oh, it's The Last Picture Show. It is The Last Picture Show. Doy. All okay. of her known fours are performances she was nominated for. That's amazing. Ellen Burson Rules, Joseph, yes. All I right. Love You, Happy 100. I can't, be- can't believe we almost forgot about the IMDb game. Okay, that finally is our episode. Chris, I love you too. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at at, under, uh, at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, tell the listeners where they can find you and your stuff. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Guys, we're wrapping up Pride Month. Please, please, please uh, donate to the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. That's MarshaP.org. Indeed, do it. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. I'm also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed. Reed, in both cases, is spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings all this time for his fantastic artwork. That's the wonderful graphic you see when you download our podcast. Uh, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius, you guys were instrumental to getting us off of the ground. We would not have a podcast without either one of you. Thank you guys so much. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility. So if you don't write us a five-star review, God help you. JK, JK, thank you. We love you. Thank you for 100 episodes. (laughs) Thank you for 100 episodes of being the absolute best. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week and the next 100 more for more buzz. Baby, 